Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, which is being recorded on Monday, November 25th, 2019, starting at 4.56 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, I'm going to be talking with Austin Kopik and Kelly Surtees, and we're going to be answering questions that were sent in by listeners over the course of the past day or two. Uh, welcome, guys. Hi. Hey. So this is our final episode in our week-long marathon of recording back-to-back -back podcast episodes. I think this is number five or six, depending on how you're counting, right? Six well, for us, six for five Austin, for five Kelly. for me. Kelly took off for a, a vacation yesterday and went and <laughs> caught, taught like a six-hour workshop, workshop in <laughs> yeah. Boulder. Which was great. Yeah. So it's been it's the end of a long week, but we've got a lot of good questions that were sent in by listeners um, in our private Facebook group, as well as through Twitter. So we're going to be going through some of the best ones there and looking for some good discussion topics. All right. Uh, shall we jump right into it? Sure. Let's I think so. It. All right. So do you want to read question number one, Kelly? Sure. From uh, Old School Astro via Twitter. What was the role of transits in ancient astrology and how do each of you employ transits in your current practice in contrast to other predictive techniques? Okay. So this question does come up a lot because people sort of wonder, you know, how transits fit into the ancient model. So, Well, Chris, would you like to start? Sure. So uh, transits typically were the last line in terms of timing techniques where typically in most forms of ancient astrology, especially in Hellenistic astrology, they would start with um, time, various time lord techniques that break up the entire life into different chapters and subsections as if the life was a book. And um, those give you like the broad chapters as well as some of the paragraphs. But then eventually, uh, the last line and sort of the predictive techniques to look at the triggers and events would be the transits, which uh, some of which are much more fast moving, especially compared to like a Time Lord period that lasts for 20 or 30 years or what have you. There's not really many transits that last that long <laughs> that I can think of. No. Uh, Sedna? Yeah. Right. Maybe a Sedna or like an Eris <laughs> transit. True. Yeah. yeah. So is that the same in Indian astrology, Austin? Yep, that's the same way they're used in uh, Geotish. And it's not just ancient. I think if we look at um, Arabic texts or Renaissance texts, um, yeah. you, you have a very similar role of transits coming in to confirm or deny or exacerbate or, null or, or moderate yeah. what is otherwise suggested from the unfolding of the birth chart. Yes. And that's that's how I use them in practice. Yeah, I would do the same actually. Look at all the other timing techniques uh, that are longer or more period oriented and mm -hmm. then add the transits in just for like a little bit of spice at the end. Is this going to be quite as hot as we think or maybe not quite? Or is that just going to refine the timing from this you know, special six-month period to a, a particularly intense three months within that, for instance? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and also using things like annual perfections to filter out which transits you're looking at in a given year, mm -hmm. so you're not driving yourself crazy. Look, trying to track all of them, but instead you have some sort of prioritization about which ones should be more important or less important. Yeah, um, once you get to an intermediate level with your technical knowledge of astrology, prioritization and good filters is absolutely necessary, or else yeah. you go insane. Yes, mm -hmm. and uh, your astrology ends up being a you know an alphabet soup. Yeah, um, where you're like everything's happening all the time, which is not true in a no, human life. It's not. I mean, and that's one of the key things to understand is that not everything is active at every time. Not everything is important in every year. And 
I mean, to kind of keep coming back to the good old kitchen analogies that are always like, you can't put every spice into the one dish. Ooh, that's 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 choice. Because it really becomes like a spice soup. When you said alphabet soup, it um, reminded me. You should that. write a like a book of like kitchen-based astrology aphorisms. Yes, I, I could definitely do that. Yeah. <laughs> I might throw in a few garden ones right. as well. Well, and right. sort of reframing the cookbook astrology book. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> the actual cookbook astrology. Yeah. Cookbook, yes. Yes. Where, you know, you, you build the flavor profile carefully and in layers. Absolutely. On and part of the reason I know that you can't put all the spices in the one dish is that I was guilty of that when I started cooking in my 20s for myself as I just try and bung everything in and it never worked. And you have this thing that tastes like nothing or it tastes like too many things. And if you try and do the same with your timing techniques, you, you will dilute anything that is of significance. Right. Yeah. So that being said, like that, because that's like the stock answer that that honestly has probably been stated on the podcast and in any of our classes or anywhere else like a million times. But we still, I still pay attention to my transits on a semi regular basis in terms of if I am paying attention to the transits in the sky on any given day, which I normally am, like I automatically know what relation they're going to have to my natal chart mm -hmm. and still in paying attention to ones that are going exact or ones that look more important or more tense for various reasons. Although then I'm just adding additional filtering on top of maybe paying attention to certain ones more knowing that they're activated as time lords in a given year or thinking about others might not be as important if they're not activated as time lords. Yeah. Um, so there I keep I similarly keep track of a lot pretty much all of my transits all mm -hmm. the time um and those will I I can realistically expect those to affect my daily or weekly experience like whether you know this was you know a, a, a given uh, a given day is like eh, a little extra annoying or whatever mm -hmm. but um I keep that separate or there's a boundary between what is going to carry a larger narrative forward, like the story of the year or the story of the decade? What is relevant to longer term, <clears throat> longer term, longer lasting effects versus like, yes, that told the story of that really annoying five minutes, mm -hmm. right? And it's not that that five minutes or an hour a week isn't real. It's just uh, of less import than something which is um, moving a much bigger story forward. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the the places where we get the bigger story would potentially not always come from transits, but the transits can, you know, factor in there. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, Chris said uh, at the beginning triggers, yes, right. which uh, I see a lot, where it's like that uh, that transit ignites or catalyzes what's promised by uh, a technique with a with a longer perspective. Yeah, uh, although one of the things I think it's important that I took from ancient astrology but then incorporated into how I was already doing and how modern astrologers were already doing transits is just paying attention to the sign ingress as the beginning of the transit and then the planet transiting planet departing from the sign as the end of the transit and then the exact transit itself often being the peak or the most pivotal moment during the course of the transit but realizing that most transits actually are much longer term affairs then you realize when you take into that account and when you are paying attention to that, especially some of the outer planets, they almost do 
take on an, a most almost more like time lord like quality um, when you're paying Excuse attention me. to like let's say a long Saturn transit that's taking three years to move through a sign mm. and like you're hitting pivotal turning points at various points during during the course of that like when it goes exact but that doesn't mean that the overall trends and the overall experiences associated with that time in your life aren't still active long before or long after the transit has has gone exact yeah and that you know if you're looking at the sign based saturn return for instance that could potentially cover three years or three birthdays so three different perfected years right and you may in one of those perfected years go into a house that's ruled by saturn which can then further emphasize mm -hmm. the transit Mm -hmm. for part of that. So there is often, there's a lot of layering and mm -hmm. then a lot of prioritizing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things also is just um, that's such an important word, prioritization, because it doesn't necessarily mean that some of the transits, it's just about what part of your life they will manifest in and using the perfections, especially advanced perfections to figure that out. Uh, so sometimes it's not that a transit won't do anything. It's just going to do it in a part of your life that might not be as important or crucial in like a global sense at that time, yeah. but still can be important to pay attention to it because it could be affecting some person in your life uh, activated relative to a perfected house or something like that that very well could still produce an event or something notable that's worth observing. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. when things actually get a little bit complicated because even though we have the the, the boiler point statement of time lords are used to tell you which transits are going to be active and which are not, when you get into the more advanced methods of like perfections and stuff, it gets a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. Well, every yeah. every uh, every sign in the house is perfected for one month every year. Right. Yeah. All right. Even that means that oh, the sign in which Saturn is. Uh, currently transiting, that's perfected for one month of the year as opposed to being perfected for the whole year. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the they, these techniques, get, they, they literally tell you how much of the time to worry about that or how much of the time to be excited about that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The time frames are built in. Yeah. Um, but in terms of techniques, I think uh, transits are one of my three timing techniques at this point. I use zodiac releasing, perfections, and transits. Mm -hmm. And I don't, even though I, I know there's other timing techniques that do things and can be useful, mm. like secondary progressions, for example, I don't have it incorporated into my regular approach that much at this point. Yeah. Um, but I know you do. Well, like what's your what's your deck of um, yeah, that this timing is, techniques? Yeah, this is a good piece for this. Um, I use secondary progressions, annual perfections, fedaria, and transits. Okay. And then there is a component that I do of working with annual perfections where also bring in the solar return chart solar returns okay yeah yeah what about you austin um so let's see i use zodiacal releasing perfections transits natural years of the planets um vimshotari dasha and uh, more and more uh, uh narayana dasha and then there are a few um very topic specific uh timing techniques, techniques. that i'll use yeah so it's good for people to understand that even between the three of us, there is quite a variety in the types of techniques yeah. that we were, and we all use a different number of techniques as well. Mm -hmm. So well, you know, we, there's we not, it's not like there's one way to do this, basically. Yeah. Well, and the, even within the same technique, you can weight it differently. Like yeah. I will look at a solar return, um, and I will grab, and I will filter that usually 
through perfections. That's and yes, that's I, how it, I do it. I will come out of a solar return with like one or two things that yes. I that I treat as relevant. Yes. Um, whereas some people will do a lot of work um, with a solar return, bring a lot more factors out of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I use the solar return similarly in like a qualifying way uh, to get some extra detail about the annual perfections. So they're very much a, a paired up piece. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So that's just a process every astrologer goes to where there's different yeah. techniques that speak mm-hmm. to you or different techniques that you found more compelling or have been able to integrate into your overall approach more or less successfully. And everybody ends up developing a unique overall approach as a result of that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But I think transits is like nobody swears off transits, basically. Nobody doesn't use transits, basically. Yeah. yeah. There's probably a contrarian out there, but there's like yeah. some anti transit yeah. contingent. But it, it would be safe to say it's one of the most common and most widely used timing techniques yeah. today. Well, because it, it's literally where are the planets in the sky right now and how yeah. does that relate to? Conceptually, it's like the easiest timing technique for students to often pick up mm-hmm. because it's like it's just where they are now and how is that aspecting your natal chart? Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to say it's the one that requires the least like technical or philosophical yeah. abstraction. Although it's like technically, if you think about it, that's not even fully true because it's the primary approach with trans is, is you're looking at where the planets are let's say now where they used to be like 20 or 30 or 40 years ago when the person was born. So there's still like a level of conceptual or philosophical abstraction that's happening even there, although maybe it's not quite as much as let's say zodiac releasing or- But there is with transits and I think people don't actually realize that is that you know, the birth chart, it's like a, a statement of energetically sensitive points, if you like, that Mm -hmm. are sensitive to you, Chris, or to you, Austin, or to me. But it's not as though if we're saying, you know, Saturn is square your Venus, transiting Saturn is square your natal Venus, your natal Venus is not actually in the sky where it was when you were born. Right. But the the impact into the natal chart comes through. Yeah. You yeah. can you can twist your head a little bit thinking about transits if you actually stop to think about it. Yeah. Like, well, I remember when we were trying to, in our secondary progressions episode, like define secondary progressions. And yeah. that was like a fun exercise to yeah. come up with a concise um, conceptual definition, just like Austin and I yesterday were trying to yeah. define magic yeah. uh, more or less successfully. Yeah, I think we did a good job. I'm frankly. so excited for that episode. It was and a I good have to dis- wait like everyone else because I wasn't here. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, early access. That's I'll just put that out there. Right. Yeah. And apparently I need to do that to get into the group. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. So I think that's good for that yes. question. Let's Thanks, move. Thanks, old school Astro, for your question. Uh, do you want to read the next one, Austin? Sure. Occult Problems or at Occult Problems asks. On Twitter? Yes. <laughs> on Twitter. Um, what do you think your role is as a group of astrologers who are now a tier older than the youngest generation of professional astrologers? And should I read part two of that question or should we wait? Uh, is it directly connected? Sure. Yeah. Like, what is the role of mentorship and role modeling in the community? And what are your favorite ways to enact that? What would you like to see more of? Okay. So I think this is a good question because it raises something we were talking about last night. But I personally- About how old we are now? Yeah. <laughs> well, but I personally don't. I feel like I'm doing exactly what I was doing like 10 years ago. But now, all of a sudden, because I'm- older and I'm not in my 20s, I'm somehow seen as like more respectful or people are taking more uh, my statements more seriously than I was when I was making them like five or 10 years ago for various reasons. Yeah, I'm still getting adjusted to that. And Austin, you mentioned something last night about having to 
maybe behave differently at conferences like, than you would. Than you <laughs> I would. can't believe you're bringing this up. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going into detail. No, that's true. I'll leave that to Austin to like. Yeah. To share or not share. Sure. Well, and that. <laughs> no, and the, it's true. And it's the, and so what is the role of mentorship and role modeling? What are your favorite ways to enact that? Right. Yeah. Like when more people are watching you and, um, you know, um, you are you are an example of what of an astrologer because I am an astrologer, so yes. I'm, I'm an example of that. Correct. Um, you know, there you think more about what you say publicly and all that. Um, I don't love it. Sits a little uncomfortable. I like it that people take. I, I like it that people um, take what I say more seriously when I'm being serious. Yeah. Um, but it's a it's a different role. It is. You know yeah. and. It happened really all of a sudden because we were the kids for I don't know decade, decade and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was it wasn't um, that we stopped becoming the kids at or we stopped being the kids at age thirty seven point five. Um, it was literally when the next generation yeah. all jumped into astrology in a very short, maybe two year window. Yeah, you know, you become uh, you become not young when there are people younger than you yes right right it's yeah. not about how old you are it's about whether there's somebody younger relative than you. but then all uh, yeah. like there was a slight also happened to like we finally got some of our stuff together by that point simultaneously as well like you published your book like i published that in 2014 yeah but that was just right only uh, what like a couple years before like the influx of like all of these other astrologers or i got my book out in 2017 uh, I started the podcast in 2012, but I didn't get serious about it until a few years later. So that um, a lot of the people that came into the field over the past couple of years suddenly find, uh, you know, 100, 200 episodes that are available to listen to for free, which are just like a bunch of classes. I, yeah, I had someone say they listened to all of the back catalog in the last three months. Wow, wow. that's intense. I was like, wow, and they were just commenting on on the development of our show, like mm-hmm. how the how that has grown over the time. Anyway. Yeah. But it's like if you're just doing anything, but you put it on a long enough timeline, then all of a sudden it really adds up and builds up to something over time. Yeah. I think, I mean, it can, from that perspective, people can think, oh, it's sort of like, you know, that overnight success thing that's a long time coming because Mm -hmm. you're doing it for, you know, 10 or 12 years. And then all of a sudden just the dynamics around it become different. But as you said, Chris, you don't feel like you're doing anything that differently. Sure. But as, and it's, but it's been progressive. So I don't know, I, I guess I see part of our role or my role, I guess, to provide support or guidance to the extent that we can. This is what worked for us, you know, give it a shot, but how are you finding it? Because the environment has changed, the way social media and the internet has like exploded, the way YouTube is really creating and offering both for new astrologers to learn, but also to share their material. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, this was something I talked a little bit about in a keynote that I gave at the SOTA conference like in 2014 or 2015 about the idea of like we're all walking down the same path. We're just at different places along the path. Mm-hmm. And we sort of follow in the footsteps of the people who've been down the path before us. And uh, so we benefit from the people that have gone there before us and we can share, you know, look back and point out, oh, there's a pothole over there. Don't try that yeah, kind of absolutely. thing. Or actually there's a shortcut. If you, t- if you go right here instead of straight, you know, so just being able to provide yeah. that support. I yeah, think. I went the long way. Yeah. Um, you don't have to do that. You, you, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think, yeah, that, that's part of how I see our role. 
and part of for me is just leading by example and like doing what I would naturally do, and we're all doing it sort of publicly, but trying mm. to do our best in that and put our best foot forward to whatever extent we can, uh, while occasionally paying it forward because I definitely got a leg up by getting help at various points by certain older astrologers like Demetra or uh, some of my friends at Project Hindsight or um, you know, even having Alan Oaken on and telling the story about how he just like handed me forty dollars once at a conference that I showed up to where I was like broken destitute. Yeah. And that being something that meant a lot to me at the time, even though it was uh, sort of a blow off thing for him. Yeah. Um, but thinking of that and thinking of ways that I can do that to pay forward the sort of goodwill that was shown to me by some of the older previous generation when I was coming in. Absolutely. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I think of what 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 would I have appreciated ten years ago? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. What would have helped us, or even the things that did help us? I mean, for me, um, I was really lucky to receive a scholarship at a certain point in time. So, right. you know, promoting or even offering scholarships where and when I'm able to, but letting p- other people know where the scholarships can come from in the industry. Right. Um, I know AFAN offers some, and Norwac has a scholarship program. Um, so letting letting people know things that they might not know about and trying to let them know quicker and earlier in their studies rather than later, especially if it's something that took you a while to figure out, I feel like is one of the common themes um, that crosses a lot of different boards. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I would say that my um, my style of teaching has changed over the, over the last couple of years. Yes. Um, I used to be much more focused on like just communicating technical material. Yeah. Um, and I would do that in a more modular form. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've shifted to primarily doing like year one mm-hmm. and staying with the same people the whole year or year two. Like shepherding um, them. Yeah. Or... And uh, much more pathfinding with them rather yeah. than like, here's the technique. You do what you want. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I did my job in teaching it. You go off and, and practice, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But I think that's actually one of the pieces as you're talking that through Austin, it's sort of coming together for me that it's not just about putting the material of the technique out there. I think one thing that is part of the changing dynamics in astrology today is offering more of that guide type approach where you're teaching, but there is also that shepherding or mentoring with it. And I notice I'm getting a lot more inquiries about mentorship type offerings where people can be guided not just through the material, but also how to work with the material, to work with astrology, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anything you want to see more of? Yeah, I guess that's our final question. Is there anything you would like to see more of? I'm trying to think. More good, less bad? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm really liking what's coming through conferences like Norwak, for instance, for mm. instance, where there's a lot more diversity in the speakers, both from an age, but also an, a whole wide variety of voices are being more represented. Right. And I, I really like seeing younger astrologers or newer astrologers getting into the speaking kind of pathway because then their voices start to be contributed. They get amplified into the community. Yeah, and, and there being a greater sense of like diversity in the community rather than just it being more of a like homogenous um, thing. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. That's good for that question. Um, let's see. So the next question, which uh, came through on Twitter uh, from at the blog, which says, 
What are y'all's hopes slash fears for the coming years re-astrology? Are there certain discussions or conversations you can see needing to happen within the community as a whole? Are there any upcoming configurations that bode positively slash negatively for the rise of astrology? So this is something we talked about a little bit on the last episode on Magic Austin, but just I sometimes wonder because I've studied the history of astrology, and if you study the history of astrology over a long enough timeline, you see um, it have during different periods like a meteoric rise and sometimes stay in popularity for a while, but then eventually there's usually like a down downfall. Yeah. And then it gets it goes out of style for a while, then eventually it comes back and it keeps like doing this sort of wave of going up and down over the course of thousands of years now uh, in the Western astrological tradition. So with the sudden popular rise in popularity of astrology over the past two years, I do wonder if there will be um, any sort of resistance to that or like upswelling at some point of like skeptical sentiment or even um, you know, as certain concepts move more into the public consciousness, like Mercury retrograde or Saturn return, if people, if there's any backlash to that. Like I have actually heard somebody in like a barbershop once I talked about a few years ago, um, sort of like mocking the concept of the Mercury retrograde and how their dumb roommate was always freaking out about this planet changing directions and how they were annoyed by that. Uh, so I do wonder either that or if any astrologers, as astrology gets more popular, if anybody sort of messed something up, um, if it could enact any sort of either political or religious opposition, which is another thing that astrologers periodically have to deal with. Mm. Yeah. I've been thinking about this quite a bit. I think my expectation for the medium term, so next five years, mm-hmm. um, I think that um, I think that there's uh, so there's been a wave of interest the last couple years, and I think that we're nearing the crest or just past that uh, crest of people getting into it. You know what we saw was basically a whole generation which uh, the millennials in the United States is the largest generation since the baby boomers kind of all finding out about astrology at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we're approaching a plateau of interest, which isn't like um, a a hugely contrary backlash uh, or another giant rise. I think the, the result of the pro and con forces will be that we'll be, you know, we'll be at that plateau level for uh, five years or so, mm-hmm. um, and that that plateau level is higher than it's been for a while. Um, but um, yeah, that, that's that, those are my expectations for the that medium term. Yeah. And Austin and I had talked a little bit about this last night, just around the large influx of new people and new voices coming into astrology. Mm-hmm. And I guess, yeah, for me, I think a part of me just does want to have like, okay, let's kind of gather everyone together or everyone just to find their place within astrology and that people, that the new people that have come in are able to settle into it and and to get their training under their belt. And I'm kind of excited to see, you know, five years from now, once the, the big influx we've had in the last couple of years, once those astrologers come into their maturity with the material and start to teach and build their own client practices, I'm excited to see um, how they're going to help bring the industry forward. Yeah. Um, one thing that we talked about at dinner last night that I think is worth repeating is um, I think we're all very, uh, should we say, pleased with the next generation of astrologers or the next age tier. Yeah. Um, 
Um, like there are plenty of people who are doing good work and they're only going to get better. Yeah. Um, I know there were, uh, if you talk to folks who are maybe in their seventies now who are astrologers, there were periods where they were worried. They're like, who's going to replace us? Yes. Right. That was a um, conversation at conferences for years and yeah. years, which is yeah. like, where, where like are where, all the young what's, people? What's happening well, next? Chris, you and I both served as the president of the AYA for a while. Mm -hmm. And so I know that when I was in that, I was at a conference in that capacity, I would have people who who'd been leading a group for 30 years or conference organizers come up to me and be like, where are the kids? Yeah. What mm -hmm. are we going to do? Yeah. How do we get them? Like, how do we support them? How do we make it easier for them to come in? And yeah. And that was that, just that prior problem to has this been solved. Wave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely hopeful and positive. One one issue we did talk about also last night, just to keep bringing up all the dinner conversations we've been having this yes. week. Uh, <laughs> we is, forgot to bring the mic. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Next time. Although that might be problematic in and of itself. Yeah, no mics that do not. <laughs> okay. Uh, so one of the problems that's a potential issue, and I've talked about it before, is just um, the need to revitalize local astrology groups and the local mm -hmm. astrology scene, which I feel like in some cities has been withering for years now. And sometimes the current local groups are not as welcoming or easy to join and, and get integrated into as they could be. And I hope, especially with the rise of the internet, with so many people connecting online and, and just having entire friendships and, and learning astrology entirely online, that some of those people do sort of still see the value of meeting up in person and that the especially the local astrology group scene doesn't completely die out over the next generation. But I think in order for that to happen, more of the young people are going to have to take it into their own hands, either to get involved in the current existing groups, which can sometimes be good, but sometimes can be difficult. It's harder mm -hmm. to like move into an established power structure and attempt to like change and revitalize things than it is sometimes to just start your own group and like mm -hmm. start doing your own thing, like start a group on Meetup and start meeting up informally or mm -hmm. formally with a group of other astrologers and see what you can get started. Yeah, and that's actually something you know, to answer the piece about what what we would like to see more of. Uh, one thing I'd like to see more of is that resurgence at the local group level, mm. if you like. And I think the way that's going to happen is independently from the astrological organizations. Right. And that might be a little bit of a controversial opinion, but I actually think things like Facebook groups, Facebook pages, Meetup, there are so many ways that I mean, we. I'm in a stage in my life where we're moving around a lot for various reasons. But if I have thought many times in the past few years, if we we knew we were going to be somewhere for five years, I'd start a local group just to create that community and that connection mm -hmm. because getting together in person is so invaluable. Sure. Yeah. One thing I would just add to that is that um, even though you know people of different ages and from different places um, can all relate to astrology and astrology can tell all sorts of people interesting things, there is such a thing as generational culture subculture, mm -hmm. and that there you know for the a lot of the people who got into astrology during the previous peak in the sixties and seventies have different priorities as far as what they're interested in doing with their astrology yeah. than people who um, maybe got into astrology, you know, um, 26 months ago. Yeah. Um, and that I've seen there be issues with those sort of conf the conflicting priorities of different generational subcultures where you put um, you know, a 27-year-old into a group where the median age is 56. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it's not um, it's not necessarily that the older people are mean and unwelcoming, but they're they're focused on doing something different than astrology yeah. than somebody you know who just got into it um, or who's you know or who's been in it for five years but is of a different generation. They might have a different priority in it, you know. If different flavor profiles yeah. to come back to the cooking and food, yeah, and they use some, different spices. Some you know some groups will change yeah. um, and include those. And then in some cases, um, you, the, there may be a necessity to start new groups. Yeah. Um, it's not the, – the technology, it, the tools are there to start groups pretty easily. Super easy. Yeah. So – Yeah. Did like, you want – Like Meetup or Instagram. Yeah. I mean, I started my own group here in Denver in 2008, and there was already two other existing groups, but wanted to do some things a little differently and wanted to inject a new um, – direction in terms of just what I thought would be interesting and what I thought would draw in like younger people. Yeah. So using something like Meetup, using new technology was one of the things which at the time was like new yeah. up and coming thing yeah. and helped to set us apart. I've seen other people like uh, Kelsey Rose in Chicago using like Instagram to create a new local astrology group there and there's like a they're sort of revitalizing the local astrology scene in Chicago through that and that's been exciting to see over the past like year or so. Absolutely. And I think the there's a Facebook page for like Astrology Brooklyn, for instance, yeah. to and, create a group outside Manhattan. And like which, Shakira's uh yeah. meetup groups where she does dinners. That's in right, which she York. organizes dinner. So there's a because we did get a question I think about local groups. Like what what was to, that? It was about how to uh, – someone is looking to start a local group, in re a local in real life astrology group, any tips to help it be successful? So Okay. So this is from on the Patreon the, Facebook group. The Facebook this page is from Mar Martina. Martina Segovia. Yeah. I would just say any tips to be successful, like Meetup is invaluable, uh, like using meetup.com because then – if you start a group and it has the subject of astrology, it'll send out an email to everybody in the area who has astrology listed as an interest saying there's a new group with that theme in your area. It takes away the need to know website design and programming and you can have a website and it'll show up in Google search results as well as a mailing list and a discussion forum and all of that. So it's got all that built in. Yeah. And it's wow. like $20 a month, which at first can be like an expense um, for you if you're just starting out. But sometimes there's just things you got to do. And eventually once you do it for long enough, you'll gain enough steam and it'll make it easier. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you can charge people a small fee to attend or you can do it more casually, I guess. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And do you have any ideas or? I mean, I guess I think if you're going to start a local group, you would also have to think about it's a commitment that you'll want to be consistent with. Yeah. That what will help it grow is knowing that it's, you know, the second Saturday of the month and you're just really committed to to being there for that. Yeah, consistency. Yeah. The cons consistency is key because there's so many things that pop up and then die off, and you might have more some more people come some months and less the other months. But you just, I guess, in the first year or two, you've got to be really committed to um, trying to make it, trying to be consistent, so that that will create some solidity around it, and that will grow over time. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. consistency—that's the biggest thing because it might you might struggle early on, or you might have great success early on, but there may be like sort of peaks and, and, and dip. dips. Yeah. But over a long enough timeline it'll sort of build up um and eventually sort of start to handle itself a little bit more than it might early on. Yeah. Last note, start uh start the local group with an election with a strong eleventh house. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I had yeah. a good electional chart Sorry. for our group that was an electional chart I had seen like two years earlier and I knew I wanted to do something with 
And then it just sort of happened that I was ready to start a group around that time and ended up using it um, in Denver in like May of 2008. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like Leo rising with the sun in Taurus with Venus in the 10th whole sign house and Mercury was uh, in Gemini in the 11th house as the ruler of the 11th house. That's a good one. That's yeah. a nice one. That was a good, good election. Yeah. All right. Is that good for that question? Yeah, I think mm -hmm. so. Uh, I think we're you, up to Adina's question. Do you want to read the next one? <clears throat> sure. Adina Herzl via Twitter. How do you maintain and honor your boundaries slash the privacy of others when friends like acquaintances, coworkers, or whoever ask you about their charts or about themselves when they learn that you're an astrologer? I'm sure you guys have both had that happen. Because I mean, there's different versions of that. There is the Sometimes if like new people in the astrological community can come up to you in person at like a conference and like hand you their chart and ask mm -hmm. you to read it and not know that that's not really normally something it's that's good done. Good to have a little bit of something like the word that comes to my mind is foreplay, which is not appropriate. <laughs> no, that's appropriate. But it's you, like wouldn't, you, want... you wouldn't just walk up to somebody at a conference and begin foreplay. That's right. You that know, would like, be you, there would be um, some sort of dance or connection or opening at that the would very lead to that. Extremely rude and possibly illegal. Illegal, yeah. So handing somebody your chart is like the French kissing of astrology. Yeah, okay. it's 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 a little it's a little forward. It's a little intimate. Okay. Yeah. Uh. So, but in terms, of, they're talking about like other acquaintances. Um, like the scenario that comes to my mind when I hear this question is, you know, you're out at a social event that's not astrological, like maybe in your real life, and somebody hears that you're an astrologer. Usually, my husband's told them, and I'm like, why? And then I've got you got to go through the piece about, oh my god, tell me more about that, or I'm this, and what can you say? I mean, I I, I had this very weird experience recently where. I'm booking a room for a workshop next year mm -hmm. and the gentleman that I'm working to book the room through obviously knows what I'm doing. It's on the, my email signature and the title of the workshop and what have you. So we've, we've had the business emails and then he sends me an email telling me he's turning X age and um, his Y sign and do I have any insight for him? Wow. So yeah. I just thought. <laughs> I mean, and usually it's more they'll just say their sun sign or something like yeah. that and, and there's not much you can do with that yeah if you're used to like reading full-on birth A charts full chart. yeah. so that's the more common scenario which is just annoying there's not much you can say yeah yeah um, smile and nod smile okay i mean i guess the question is like how do we handle that so what would you guys do in the what do you guys do in these instances or what have you done in the past well i don't have co-workers i guess y'all are my co-workers yeah i don't I don't know. It doesn't come up very often. Okay. Um, and for the, I don't know, I, you know, we were talking about the questions earlier. Yeah. And I remember there used to be boundary problems yeah. where people are always trying to get me to do stuff. And I don't remember what I did or what behavior patterns I shifted into. Um, but for, I don't know, the last five years, like people are very respectful about mm. my boundaries. Yeah. Um, I mean, they probably just assume that you're really busy. Like I get that a lot, which is true that I'm actually extremely busy. And if you email me a question about your chart, like out of the blue, I don't really have the time. And that would also be like a knowing that that's your job and that um, you are char you charge by the hour, so people pay you for your time in order to like look at things. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like a related sort of side question, which is like sometimes if let's say a client has a follow up question mm -hmm. like a year later, I heard somebody asking about this recently, and if they should set aside time for that, or if they need to book a separate consultation, 
And I think it's pretty universally agreed on amongst like consulting astrologers that you would need to book like a separate consultation or a follow-up mm-hmm. for something like that, right? Yeah. 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 So it's kind of the same principle here, which is like most of the time you're not going to just immediately like break out your ephemeris and start delineating their chart, Mm-mm. but that's something that you would need to prepare for. Because I was asking you guys the other night, but both of you still have prep time for consultations, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. that's part of the answer to that is like, if you wanted to sit down and do this, then we would need to book a consultation so that I could schedule time and sit down and actually review your chart properly mm-hmm. in order to make any statements about it. Whereas just making some statements off the cuff might not be good for for either of us. Totally. And I think yeah. sometimes when this sort of situation happens, there is a real curiosity and a real innocence that the person sort of asking doesn't always realize right. what they've actually asked. Mm-hmm. And so some of the responses that I've I've tried to sort of put something together that's very gentle, but still very clear in terms of yeah, that's the kind of thing that I cover with my clients. You know, I'm mm-hmm. booking X months in advance. And if you'd like to look at that, I'd love to go into it with you. Um, why don't I give you my card and you can email me. We can set up an appointment. Just to kind of very gently let them know or sort of steer them towards this is part of my professional offering and more than happy to do that with you. Here's how we would go about that. Because mm-hmm. um, the other piece for me now that I have built my consulting practice up to the point where I am booked you know, a few months in advance, it also becomes a little bit disrespectful for clients that are on the wait list or waiting to get an appointment right. to sort of you know, be doing this off the cuff or answering the questions by email. It's like, if I take the time to do that, I really should actually grab the person who's at the top of my wait yeah, list yeah. and mm-hmm. do that because they've well, been waiting for a few months type right. of thing. So that, yeah. that reminds me. I guess one of the things that I do do um, that will come up at conferences is I don't I don't mind talking about a chart with mm-hmm. a person, but that's different than um, making predictions or coming to a judgment. Like yeah. that's reading, yeah, and that requires the whole chart and you know in reference to all the time lord systems and you know careful thought. Um, that's but somebody was like, yeah, you know, oh, I've got sun in the ninth and in. Virgo. And I'm like, oh, do you have Mercury in Libra or Virgo? Yeah. Or, you know, like we can talk about a chart, yeah. but that's um, that's different than the like. That's a great distinction, actually. Yeah, that there is a way to talk about the chart because particularly at conferences, this does happen and there's sort of the casual encounter uh, or interaction around it. Um, but there are some subtle differences between can you tell me about this thing in my chart or can you tell me about me? Yeah, especially in terms of level of familiarity with that person, whether it's like a stranger versus a friend. But the, maybe that's worth talking about since that was part of her questions because the yeah. first part was about friends. Like friends ask you. So if we're talking yeah. about like friends and we're talking about like each other, so maybe it would be worth talking briefly about the extent to which professional astrologers professional astrologers don't usually like thrust their charts on other professional astrologers. But so that's one part of that, the answer piece, to that. The other yeah. piece, though, is that amongst relatively close friends or professional astrologers, they do usually have like some familiarity with each other's charts. And that will come up in conversation at different points, especially as you're just like catching up on your lives or getting to know more about each other. And sometimes that can be okay, depending on the level of comfort that the other astrologer has with sharing their chart details. And I think in that scenario where you're talking about where there's a level of like social friendship intimacy, I mean, mm-hmm. I know uh, I've got two dear friends, you know, Cassandra and Alicia, who I do a, a, the Water Trio podcast with. 
the three of us are, are really good friends in addition to being all being astrologers. So mm. it's not uncommon for one of us to be babbling about something in our life and for the other one to jump in and say, oh, but that's going to be because this thing is happening in your chart or what have you. Right. But and, then the other a, per- and then you'll yeah. be like, oh, yeah, that's actually a really good that's point. Right. I haven't thought I of it that way. Exactly. Yeah. But that's 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 a, like that's a really good friendship where there would be more of an openness or an exchange. Right. I Versus guess. if it was like another professional astrologer, but you weren't on super close terms and they started invoking your chart placements, like that could be kind of weird. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking, and now, I mean, I had an instance recently where I was teaching and and a student asked me to give them my chart and I was like, oh no, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's not available for you. Right. So that, I mean, that's sort of the reverse of this, but um, it, I think there's a lot of pieces here around, you, you got to go in carefully and you got to mm. know where you can go in and it's better to be um, invited in than mm. to try and push the door open. To like err, err on the side of caution. I think so. Yeah, I, I yeah. would just say, think about if you're asking the person to do work and if another person is asking you to do work. If somebody is like, yeah, I've got Mercury and Libra in the 10th. Yeah. It's like this, this, and this. I'm like, oh, that's fun. Yeah. You know, versus if somebody's like, yeah, I have, um, you know, my sun sign is Scorpio Am I going to die in six months? Yeah. Like, well, that's a really serious topic. (laughs) Like, I'm not just going to be like, you know, you know, definitely. Yeah. Right. You know, like that's, you know, and that I'm giving a hyperbolic thing, but somebody's like, oh, um, I'm going to launch this project in approximately six months. Um, You know, do you think that's going to be a a blah, blah, blah? Like, or here's a, a, Lisa probably gets this. So we're like, oh, what's the best election in yeah. June uh, to do this thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that's my job? Yeah. <laughs> right. That will take me some time to figure out. And Would you like to make Maybe you know that and maybe you want to share that, but you're like asking the person to do work. And yeah. I would say for moderating your own boundaries, you know, is the person asking you to like give serious consideration and judgment and look at all the stuff and hem and haw and come to a conclusion because that's that's work yeah um and if you are comfortable doing that that's fine but you know um just gauge how much you're how much you're being asked to do yeah and whether that's something you can do for everyone if, is that just like light and fun is that just conversation or is you know are they are they giving you a project yeah that's a great distinction definitely yeah all right and this sort of segues a little bit into the next question i think uh, do you want to read it, Austin? I think it's your turn. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So on Twitter at Mercury Prashant writes, do you charge your regular fees from relatives or to relatives also? Is your approach different from as compared to unknown clients? So basically, is there a family and friends rate? Yeah. And so that's, um, we were talking about this earlier. Um, that's changed for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to do a family and friends rate. Now, um, I, I, my family and friends, it's always free mm-hmm. if I'm reading. Yeah. Um, they, my family and friends do not get to call me up and demand chart readings for free. Yeah. Whenever. Yeah. Um, part of the reason it's free is everybody's really respectful of mm-hmm. my, my time and energy. Um, and so, yeah, it's very, um, my, my pricing is very different and my, um, you know, um, my relationship to whether, um, like they they don't have to wait in the seven month queue yeah. if like my cousin's having uh, an extremely hard time and something's going on. Like yes, week I'll read for you next week. Yeah, uh, which is different than you know uh, a rando. Yeah, 
And in terms of friends, there's probably different like layers of friends where Definitely. that are like in that circle versus <laughs> that might be like outside of that where they would have to just like sign up for a normal consultation or something. Yeah, the friendlies. The fr yes, it's. I mean, in what what this question and the previous question are really speaking to is about boundaries and mm -hmm. how we hold our practice of astrology within the context of our normal social interactions and relationships. Mm -hmm. I don't have normal social interactions, <laughs> Kelly. Tell me, tell me of this. <laughs> well, well, and also like what happens when astrology is your hobby versus when it becomes your full time job? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I can see instances where if you're if it's more of a hobby or you're trying to maybe build a practice, you might be willing to do a little bit free to allow people to get a sense of you as a practitioner yeah, or Yeah, when you need you. to get practice in. Yeah, I, when um, you need practice or you're trying to, you know, build clients. Yeah, for me, you? like early on, that's like all you're doing is Absolutely. you're doing like friends and family and, and work. A hundred percent. And I you probably won't be charging. Them. I kind of returned to that in a certain way over the last two years, like doing uh, the Vedic astrology class. I was like, oh, it's all this new stuff and mm -hmm. I need data on this and practice. I need practice on this. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was, I was like back to 26 year old Austin, like trying to read everybody's chart. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, I do have a friends and family, right? And it's really a friends rate because my relatives, I would like my siblings, I would, you know, give them all sessions free. And I, I, I do read for some of my family members, you know, annually or what have you, they're curious and they're just interested to see what astrology has to say about their chart for the year ahead or what they're dealing with. I remember a gorgeous, um, just, and this is where the casualness is appropriate when there's a level of intimacy. My sister-in-law, my brother and I were sitting around, oh, probably two or three years ago now. And they sort of, you know, they're talking about having their second baby and, you know, every now and then my brother, my brother's not super into it. He, he gets a little bit sort of, I don't want to, you know, hear things that might make me, you know, go into weird spaces, but his, his partner is really into it. And they sort of said, look, you know, when, when would be a good time for us to have a second baby? And because I, I know that both their charts, I sort of said, well, the last two weeks would have been fantastic for you guys to conceive because they have moons in the same sign and there was a Jupiter activation going on. And they just chuckled and I said, why? And they said, we're very newly pregnant type of oh, thing. Oh, cute. So, and that's my niece who's now, uh, she's just turned two. So there's a casualness there, but I do, so I don't charge my siblings. Um, I tried to do a reading. I tried to give my sister-in-law a free session, but she insisted on paying. So I set a lower rate for her. And there's a few people in my family or in my sort of close friend network that are not siblings that I would charge that friends and family rate for. Um, and in terms of like, is the approach different? I always find I want, I sort of feel not that I don't ever not want to be on my game, but I feel a little bit more pressure when I'm reading for people that I'm really close to. Mm. I don't know why that is, but I've spoken to other practitioners and they say, you know, when there's that sort of arm's length distance of I don't know you, you just kind of sink into the astrology. But when you know them, it, I don't know, it just feels a little different. Yeah. Same yeah. here. Yeah. I, I put a little more pressure on myself, which I don't know why. But. Well, the you have multiple layers. You have multiple levels of relationship. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you you are a friend. Maybe you're a friend and a sibling-in-law. Yes. And, you know, you're going to go on vacation together in three weeks. So, and, that, yeah, there's more dynamics. There, there's more pressure, you know, like yeah. um, in – um, a million years ago when I worked in the psychological field, one of the things that we talked about a lot um, as far as professional development was dual relationships and how it's very difficult to be have a therapeutic relationship with someone mm. and a friend relationship at the same time. Yeah. 
And so the the more layers you have, the more complicated um, it becomes, the more the more you have to navigate. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's also tricky, obviously, because with family members, you know a lot more about that person's life going into it, and mm-hmm. you've already studied their chart probably pretty extensively up to that point and have some like specific opinions already about how certain parts of their chart play into their life and various events or various like characteristics they have yeah. as a result of that and certainly attempting to like maintain some level of objectivity when dealing with people that you've had close relationships with your entire life can be a little bit tricky mm-hmm. it's not impossible but certainly being conscientious of that dynamic in your own relationship with them or even synastry with them can be kind of important it's a delicate situation. Yeah, yeah. one also, um, you know, I I think for the entire time we've been together, um, I do a birthday reading for Kate mm-hmm. every year. Yes. Um, and so um, I am more attached to things going well for her yes. than I am for anybody else. Right. Yes. And I am, you know, uh, I am more concerned um, for difficult things for her than I am for anybody else. Yes. And so there's a stronger emotional pull both ways, which isn't impossible to navigate, but it's something that you have to navigate. It's yes. just, you know, it's it's a challenge. Yeah. Sure. I mean, your partner's chart or anybody you're living close with on a daily basis is going to be one of your primary study tools on some level as an astrologer just because you're aware of it. I mean, this actually came up with the episode with Jessica and she had a very unique, somebody asked this question about looking at your partner's chart and how often do you do it? And she said she doesn't ever and never did and, and only first looked at her partner's charts like like five months into the relationship, which is is fine and that's her specific approach. But I did note at the time that that was extremely unique relative to what I know about most astrologers, I feel like in the astrological community. Well, so one thing I just want to throw in, um, the closer you are to someone, the greater the chances that you show up in the chart. That's true. Like, you know, if I'm looking at if I'm looking at Kate's chart, it's like, well, you got all this stuff in the seventh house happening. Yeah. Right. I guess there will be (laughs) benefits from partnership or wow, that looks like a really hard time for you and your partner, right? Like You know, or you know, if it's a yes. friend, like oh, the eleventh house uh, yes. looks like um, you know. Anyway, that, no, that's like a really liter- great point. Like you can literally be one of the transits that you're trying so, to describe or to time them, words or whatever. Yes, that's so good. I mean, Chris, I don't know how you feel about this. We did get a question actually directly to this, which Austin is starting to answer. Sure. Um, from Joey Puopolo via Twitter. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. I apologize. I have mangled names far worse than that. Okay, cool. Um, Asking, I'm curious how astrologers handle doing readings for their spouses or significant others where everyone stands and where everyone stands on the ethics of that, et cetera. I'm sure astrologers don't want a counseling relationship with their partner, but you would probably want, you know, to talk to them about specific things that are in their chart. Well, and I think that's one of the places where your approach to astrology matters a lot. Yeah. Because I, although um, I think astrology often will have therapeutic benefit, mm. um, I don't, <clears throat> I don't come in with that as the primary objective. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I'm reading for Kate, it'll be like, yeah, looks like, you know, February, there's going to be some pains in the ass with this. Like, it's literally just looking at the terrain. Yeah. Um, and it's not, uh, I'm, I'm not talking about, I'm, you know, we're, we're not focusing on like, 
you know, childhood experiences or whatever, you know, if it's not specifically pointed out. And relevant for It's that like, time. yeah, yeah, you know, uh, there's a Mercury retrograde here. It's in your 10th. Um, you know, she does, uh, her business involves shipping, right? Yes. So, you know, you're going to want to- She'll <laughs> want to know about that. Keep an eye on shipping stuff during this period of time. It's also perfected, you know, like that. Yes. It, it's practical. And so um, that's not a counseling relationship. Yeah. That's no, like a yeah. like a field report or like a yeah lay of the land. Lay, yeah, and similarly, actually, my husband and I we used to do. He's very good with reading tarot, and for the first few years of our relationship, he would often give me a tarot reading for my birthday, and I'd often do some astrology for him. But we have fallen out of that habit. You're inspiring me um, for us to get back into that. It's but fun. It, it it is fun, and it's an opportunity because. I think we're all lucky in that sense that we all have partners where they are, if not, you know, also practicing astrologers. My husband's not, but he's de definitely familiar with the terrain. Mm -hmm. And that creates like a sense of curiosity. Like what, what is going to come up and when is this going to be dealing with? And we obviously, many of you know, we move countries in the summer and we had this really intense few day period where it was just high stress and there was a small car accident. And um, I realized that Mars was doing something quite annoying in my husband's chart at the time. So that was helpful for both of us to sort of be like, oh, just a couple more days and then this very aggravating energy mm -hmm. is kind of gone. So it's very much about managing the day-to-day -day, uh, type of thing. Yeah. How and, do you guys handle that? Well, and, and definitely um, being having another, being in a relationship with somebody else that is an astrologer creates more of a level playing field compared to like if you were the astrologer and you're that's a, true and your your partner's not yeah, yeah um and that can lead to some like imbalances if you're like constantly talking about their chart or if you're like reading their chart or like acting as their astrologer in some way like i could see some problems with that, that. would be problematic for many reasons other than just the fact that you were reading the astrology yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it could indicate some and stuff. But so that being said, though, being in a relationship with another astrologer, um, Lisa often knows more about what's going on in my chart than I know what's going on on a day to day basis sometimes because so, yeah. I go in through different periods of like paying attention versus like not paying attention, especially to some of the Time Lord periods that are going on in Zodiac releasing. And every once in a while, she'll like remind me that I'm going through such and such period, and that's actually a really useful reminder. Yes, um, like living with your own ephemeris or something. Yeah, the yeah. human ephemeris, the yeah. non Nick Dagan best version. Version, yeah, right. The much prettier version. <laughs> I <laughs> no mean, how dare you? Nick Dagan best is very pretty. Just, uh, yeah. So yeah. that. Does that answer the question? I think so. Yeah, I, I don't think it's healthy. And, and from a counseling sort of perspective, there are actual um, strictures or rules against, you know, working with people that you know, for instance. So if you were doing deep counseling or therapeutic style work. so well, and, and I do think like if you're an astrologer and you're in a relationship with a non-astrologer, you should be careful about how you're bringing astrology into that relationship and that you're not doing it in a way that's like obnoxious or inappropriate or disempowered. Like, there's all sorts of ways that that could go wrong. And I'm often nervous about it because then you're acting as like the representative of the astrological community to this person. And if you're playing out weird relationship dynamics and bringing astrology into it inappropriately, it could create a, a bad situation. I, I think a really yeah. good rule of thumb is Ask the person what they want to know. Do you want? Yes. Do you want me to like give you these little updates? They're like, oh, I'm having a hard day. Yeah. Well, the moon is uh, on your Mars for the next three hours. Like, you'll, yeah. It'll probably mellow out in a little bit. Yeah. Like, do you want things like that? Like, you know, the communication is really critical. The um the couples that I know, 
where one is an astrologer and one isn't, that it seems to work really well. Um, <clears throat> the non-astrologer is just like, yeah, they tell me useful things. Yeah. Um, it's not, uh, you know, those are the things that I want to know and they tell me that and they don't bother me with the rest of their astrology. Yeah. The other thing that I've noticed, I've had the privilege of, of doing is doing astrology readings for partners or children or stepchildren of people who are astrologers where the 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 individual is interested in astrology but the person who's the astrologer is like I don't, I may not be the best person to talk with you about this. So uh if they do want to know, you can tell them if they want to hear it from you, but if they're curious sometimes supporting them to connect with someone to keep just a little bit of space in the relationship can be helpful too. Mhm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So that's a whole Whole yeah. discussion yeah. in and of itself. There's a few thoughts. You did an episode on that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did one earlier this year with Eugenia and, and Lisa, and we talked about some of the dynamics that come up in being in a relationship with another astrologer. Fantastic. So people can go back and listen to that. I have no idea what episode number it is, but two hundred something, I'm guessing. And if they just Google you and Lisa and Eugenia, yeah, they'll get it. All right. Uh, so moving along, um, this question came in from Twitter and this is from at fortunate fire on Twitter it says Kelly talked about the importance of astrologers quote unquote cross-pollinating in her keynote at Norwalk. Uh, what do you cross-pollinate your astrology with or are there other folks cross-pollinating their astrologies in ways that you'd like to see more of? Kelly, so what, did, about it what did you mean by that? Yes. Of this. So what I meant in the keynote speech was that I think if you're really interested in something that's not astrology, it's appropriate to bring that into your astrology, you know, within certain parameters. And some of the examples I used were, you know, people who are very interested in finance and stock markets, then bring that, let that spark of passion that you have for the markets come into your astrology and you may find an intersection where you can work with the two together. For me personally, um, I have had an interest in, um, you know, to do with the body and health and healing via my interest with massage therapy, but also with food and a little bit to do with Ayurveda. I'm not an expert in any of those areas, but having an interest in the body has really guided me towards some of the health and medical astrology material. And that just allows a little bit more of my own essence, if you like, to come through in the work that I'm doing. So you're so, talking about cross-pollinating with astrology and like other fields? Yeah, disciplines outside astrology that may not be astrology, but that can be complementary to astrology. And, you know, for you guys, I think Austin with magic, which is, you know, it's a distinctly different discipline, but it has a beautiful crossover with astrology. Yeah. Well, astrology has um, uh, well-cataloged and organized intersections with a lot of other fields, Yeah, right? Um, the type of medicine that was practiced in the West for 1,500 years shares some language with astrology. You it have that elemental does. language and that's um, the um, people getting interested in temperament, which is an astrological calculation, mm. is um, part of the point of intersection. Yeah. Um, and are you, uh, excuse me, in uh, uh, Vedic astrology or Jyotish, um, there, there's a very carefully organized intersection with Ayurveda mm -hmm. and with, with uh, Vastu, which is like um, the Indian feng shui. Yeah, Indian feng shui. And you know, there there are a number, you know, if you look at, you, know, you could say, oh, geology, because if you look at books, it's like, well, these kind of stones oh, are ruled yes. by this and yeah. these kind of stones are ruled by that. You know, the 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 connections are all, I would say the 20th century 
um, spent a lot of time with what cross-pollination is possible between a depth psychology approach. Yes, you mentioned um, that. And yeah. the chart. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I, the, my, the, the symbolic point that I was making with this was around almost like the, the keeping it fertile, allowing it to grow and having these sort of extra pieces come in and, and adding to the experience. And yeah, the 20th century, you know, the psychology crossover, if you like. Chris, I know um, your interest in, in things like the Stoic ideas and philosophy and even history have kind of been a part of how you've uh, explored astrology. Yeah. I mean, for me, astrology became the reason why you would want to start, it became a motivating factor for studying other fields, mm -hmm. like for studying ancient history or for studying philosophy or different philosophies and their either overlap or their relevance to astrology. I mean, and there's so many different- there's, there's so many different ways and that's sort of the piece about cross-pollination is that as you got further into astrology, you realized if you knew about these other things, then your astrology would be enhanced if you yeah. like. Yeah. Well, on some level, you also, that's one of the drawbacks is that you in order to be able to talk about something in astrology, like you need to have some familiarity with those other areas in order to speak about them most effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Well, astrology is, um, you know, it's uh, born by a great wind and it touches many, many, many things. Many things. You know, you can do the astrology of just about anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about some of those other fields. So, just like other that are other meta fields like psychology obviously is one of them yeah uh, but also like let's say uh, geopolitics and mundane astrology of course yeah uh, or um finance like studying stock markets and like stock market cycles and financial astrology mm -hmm. absolutely um art or art history and some yeah. of the crossover with like venus or other astrological placements that might be tied into that either in signatures of artists or in terms of different eras in art history mm -hmm. um, that might be indicated by like longer range cycles. Absolutely. Um, there's there's a ton of those. Yeah, I mean, you can do history of science. You yeah. can do the astrology of the history of science. Yeah. Do the astrology of um like what, dynasties, what, royal families. Yeah, what type of hats are popular at different <laughs> points in it's I mean, very specific, but you absolutely can. Yeah, you can do the astrology of yeah. And, th and that's one of the reasons why sometimes when people ask me if I've had occasionally like somebody write in saying that they're in college right now, but they want to pursue astrology as a career and they don't think they're going to stay in college because they don't think they can, I sometimes do recommend that they actually stay in college and finish their degree or even specialize in something while they continue to study astrology because there's plenty of fields where having that overlap and having that level of knowledge in other fields can be incredibly useful even if you decide to primarily pursue a career as an astrologer. Absolutely. Yeah, if, you're, if you're not going into debt for 30 years to finish the degree, yes. um, you know, stay in school, kids. Sure. <laughs> but it's but it's true. And when we think about some of the kind of living legends in our field, they have returned to study like languages or history. I mean Rob Hand's gone back and done religions, religious studies, or he got like a PhD in classics, and classics, he did a, okay. a dissertation on Guido Bonatti's like rules for war in the like 13th century. There you go. And Demetra's gone back and done uh, Greek, yeah. learned languages. So there are these other fields that I, th I think it's yeah. I think both of you made great points. Don't obviously rack up a lot of debt necessarily to be in school, but if you are going to be in school. Things like philosophy and ancient history or some of these languages, whether it's Latin or, or ancient Greek, they will be so helpful to you in the future if astrology is where you want to go. Yeah, because I mean, the best astrologers 
oftentimes are people that also are knowledgeable in other fields outside of astrology because that really comes in handy. Otherwise, if you're looking at an astrology chart, you may not know except aside from like a vague sense how it might relate to some other fields. Yeah. I mean, but that's always been one of my issues with getting into some subsets of astrology like financial astrology is I feel like it's not enough just to know astrology. You actually have to have a, a strong background in finance, finance and in like stock market trends and things like that. And you can't just start applying astrology out of nowhere and suddenly be wildly successful. You actually have to be good at both. And it's the combination of good work in both areas together that creates something that's that's truly useful. And that's I think that's the essence here of the point that I was making and certainly of the question is that astrology combines well, plays well with other disciplines. And yeah. so it will reward you doubly so if you have another discipline. Yeah, and it, it doesn't have to be stock markets if you don't care about money. Right. But if you care about psychology or the body or history, then bring that in as a it's remarkably com combinatory is a word. Yes. Did, is it a word? <laughs> it is a word. Okay. It's a big word. It is a big word. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, yeah. And that doesn't mean that you can't, you have to have like a college degree in something Absolutely in, in order to still do good work in that area, but it might take you extra work and focus and self-discipline to do self-study in different areas that you want to become knowledgeable about and in order to enhance your ability to do astrology. Absolutely. Yeah, it, well, it requires effective study. Yes. Which can be done in a university setting and outside of a university setting. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Definitely. All right. Cool. Okay. Did we answer that question? I think we did. I think we did. Yeah. Okay. I should probably take this next one. I think, shall I ask you this question? Yeah, ask it to me. Okay. So, Austin, uh, Alyssa yes, Pashaya from Twitter would like to know she hmm. says, This is a whole Pandora's box you may want to leave closed. No, we've never done that. No. But I want to hear more about how Austin has incorporated his Jyotish studies into his Western approach and the utility of looking at someone's chart in both zodiacs and what can be gained from that forward slash how to reconcile. There's okay. a lot of pieces in there. Yeah. So this is. Um, this is actually not a Pandora's box. <laughs> it's um, more simple. The answer is um, they're uh, they're separate approaches. Yes, and you can <clears throat> you can look at what each you can look at the chart through the lens of each approach and see what it says. Um, but you don't try to make it all one thing. Yes. There are some natural points of intersection where the logic being used is identical. Um, but that just because there are touch points doesn't mm. mean that it's all one soup. Yes. Um, and so, and like I've said before, you know, you learn one at a time. Um, you don't, you know, you don't uh, take a Hellenistic course and a Jyotish course at the same time. Which and that is, was which your is what experience. I did, by the way. That's what you did. Yeah. And uh, it's very difficult uh, <laughs> to effectively <laughs> learn. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, you just, you know, um, you have both and you can value both and, and there are, yeah. So yeah, don't try to mush it all into the same and that's how you avoid a Pandora's mess. Um, and then the, what is the utility of looking at someone's chart? Um, sometimes, uh, or sometimes they, one, sometimes they will tell me exactly the same thing. Um, which is really helpful, even though they're you know you're we're using, you, different I'm using a sidereal zodiac with 
uh, like a Vimshotari Dasha here, and we're using a tropical zodiac with a zodiacal releasing here. If they both tell me the same thing, I can say that uh, I can say that uh, with a greater level of surety. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, you know, if I'm looking at things that are already knowns within a person's life, like this thing is happening, how long will this thing last? Mm-hmm. Or you know, is there anything I can do about this thing? while it is happening, um, sometimes that will show up much more clearly and be timed much more clearly by one set of techniques than another. Sometimes it's like, oh, so that began 22 months ago? That's exactly when you entered the zodiacal releasing period. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's at this state now, and it tracks perfectly to that technique. And then uh, at other times it might be, oh, you just entered this antardasha, and and you're your experience exactly what that suggests. So I will focus on the technique that um, both describes um, and uh, that describes and uh, connects with the timeline of the of whatever is happening. Yeah. Um, so that that's that is utile. That is yeah. That's beautiful. Chris, you were saying you studied both at the same time? Yeah, I mean at Kepler, that was the unique experiment that they did. Where um, in year two the second term of the year, the second of three terms was an introduction to Hellenistic and Vedic astrology simultaneously that was co-taught by Demetra George and Dennis Harness. And it was the first time that it had ever been done before, but it created this really brilliant experience of being introduced to two of the oldest traditions of astrology, of horoscopic astrology, of natal astrology in the world and seeing many of this, the crossovers and many of the similarities between those two ancient systems like using um, whole sign houses or using the traditional rulership scheme or using time lord and dasha systems which work extremely similarly in some areas. And the same logic. Yeah. Same log- in, and yeah. seeing the overlap between those was really useful but then at the same time you also saw many of the differences in many of the areas where they diverged sometimes radically or where our time and distance from them 2000 years later caused them to diverge radically like through things like the uh, slow shift of 1 degree per century of like or per 72 years of the tropical and sidereal zodiacs mm-hmm. which creates such a major difference and a real issue sometimes in terms of looking at charts yeah, and it is interesting. I, th- I think the point that you're both making is that they're really quite distinct systems, that they sort of have a different framework and they operate in different ways. And you can end up with similar interpretations. But I think what you were saying, Austin, is not to uh, try and mash them into each other. Yeah, and I think you could study um, you could study them from a historical perspective, from a history of astrology perspective mm. at the same time. Mm. But if you're trying to train yourself to be able to do effectively one at a time. Okay. Yeah, I mean at the end of that I doing that introduction and and then continuing some Vedic studies with Dennis Harness, but then also moving to Project Hindsight at the same time I had a choice to decide which one I wanted to specialize in and realizing I needed to focus on one or the other because it was going to take a long time to achieve any sort of mastery of either of them. And I decided to focus on the Hellenistic because I felt like more of the core concepts were emanating from that tradition than from the Vedic tradition, even though I still maintained a long like interest in Vedic astrology occasionally and, and thought that it still preserves many of the core principles and practice that the Hellenistic astrologers used 
2000 years ago, but that were lost to the in the textual transmission. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think just as a general comment, I haven't studied um, Indian astrology, so I can't comment in the way that you both have. But I have had a couple of Indian astrology chart reads, and they are really interesting if you've not looked at your chart in that way. And that can be a great way to get a sense of how they're different, some of the different frameworks, even some of the different techniques. Just if, you know, I, I would love to learn about it, but like both of you have said, I sort of think it's a two to sort of five year pro, uh, project to take on. And that's not something that I can give that time to now, but the, the just getting a taste of it through personal client experience has been really interesting. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, one of the concerns I have is that it can, because this is coming up even just as a concern in purely Western astrology, but attempts to use the sidereal and tropical zodiac at the same time can sometimes become incredibly mushy and not well-formed and poorly executed. Uh, and I do think that that is especially an, an issue for students that are earlier on, that that could end up being more detrimental than it is helpful um, in the same way that trying to integrate like 200 asteroids or other chart components into something, instead of increasing your precision, at some point there's diminishing returns. And in fact, it just becomes less distinct and less useful from a technical standpoint. Yeah, the more um, the more factors you're going to consider, the more crucial it becomes for you to understand exactly what everything does and what its specific role is and you know uh, you have to if you want to if you want to have a thousand things, you have to be extremely organized in your thinking. You can't just throw a thousand things at a yeah. chart. I mean, that's almost a theme that you've mentioned the alphabet soup today. You mentioned mushy just now. So that's uh, one of the themes. Well, so you're like trying the, to do too many things at once, basically. Yeah, it's like the alphabet soup that you let sit all day. And so all the little alphabet noodles just kind of turn not letters into anymore. goo. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's one of the, that's the crisis of contemporary astrology is there's so many different approaches and so many te different techniques now. Whereas there wasn't in Western astrology like 40 years ago, it was much more homogenous. But the revival of all of these different ancient traditions and um, the importing of some of the Eastern traditions from mm -hmm. India or other places and all this stuff gives such a great amount of diversity. And, and the challenge is going to be basically remaining open-minded and still looking at and entertaining and sometimes taking pieces from different traditions at different points while at the same time not just um, using attempting to use everything at the same time and creating a hodgepodge that doesn't really mean anything or isn't really effective. Right. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying that's not a technique I use or the, the, the scope around the practice that I'm doing is this. Mm -hmm. It's actually um, a very professional way to approach it, which is to say, I'm working with these particular techniques and I'm not working with those in the same way that a doctor, most doctors do not specialize in all things. If you need to get your knees looked at, you go to see a knee specialist. I go to the eye person for my glasses. I don't want the dentist to have a look at my eyes. They're not going to be the right person. So there, there's something here to be said for, you know. My, they get out the drill and the yeah, pick. Yeah, like right? do not bring the drill near my eyes. And Chris, I know you're very familiar with dentists right now. Yeah. Yeah. But well, I think just, you know, being clear, it's, it's okay to say, I don't work with that technique or I don't use this, you know. The, the the antidote to hodgepodge and mushy is clear boundaries. Well, and it's the same thing when we're talking about our different timing techniques that we each employ earlier, which yeah. is like each of us has gravitated towards 
certain a certain set of core timing techniques that we use, even though if we have some familiarity with or even recognize some value in other timing techniques, there's still only so much time you have in either a single consultation or just in terms of your day-to-day practice to use what um, either you've really refined in terms of your approach or what you feel like has been most effective for you in practice for whatever reason. Yeah, there's a difference between knowing about something and knowing how to use how it. How to use it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, and that's where you you guys both mentioned zodiacal releasing and that's I'm not where you guys are with that technique. I know about it, but I'm not at a place where I feel that I've had enough time to really learn about it and get the examples up so I really feel like I've got it. So it does come up, particularly after you guys did your beautiful ZR episode. I had a bunch of clients say, oh, I want you to do this. you know." And I look, I just said, I'm not up to working with that technique with clients right now. So um, you know, if you want that technique, this is who I'd recommend you see. But if you're happy for me to use the techniques that I'm most comfortable with and experienced with at this point, then you know, we can jump in and do that. Yeah. Sure. And yeah. likewise, I wouldn't, um, uh, I wouldn't do a whole reading based on someone's progressions. Like I just can't get that much out of it. Yeah. I'd be like, well, we're going to take these two things and yeah. that's relevant to these other layers. But you know, um, you have more depth with that and could do more with that than yeah. I could. Yeah. And so that's, that's a thing is like knowing how good you are, how much you can do with a yeah. given technique Absolutely. and not, um, not trying to do what you can't. Yeah. So that's the question answered with a few extras. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Did we answer it? I mean, I, there is a risk of Pandora's box being opened though. I mean, if well, that, that's it. And that's what I said, you know, don't, mush it all together. Yeah. That's where you get all of the uh, the evils that afflict humanity. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Uh, what's the next question? So we've got a fun one here. Um, and then I don't know if at some point you want to switch to some of the Facebook group questions or if you're happy with how we're set up at this point. Yeah. I mean, let's keep pushing through what we have okay. in order. So Napatian from Twitter do you have other astrologers read your charts for you? How often do you look at your own chart? And then as an extra part to this question, what are some good questions to ask when having your first astrology reading? Um, I mean, we kind of answered some of that already in terms of looking at our own charts, right? Or did we? How often do you know. Look- yeah, I don't know if we did. Um, well, we were talking about this before. I mean, the tricky thing is that one part of my brain has you know, current information like transits and certainly understands perfections and has a sense of what's happening in my secondary progress chart. And another part of my brain has my birth chart in it. So there's a piece, there's almost like a background program running mm. where there's an awareness of what's going on in my chart almost all the time. Right. It's not in the front of my focus and it's not like I sit down every Sunday and do 25 techniques on my own chart for the week ahead. But there is a, a background level of awareness that's ongoing. Sure. Just because of the fact that this is what I spend every day. Yeah. In. Same, same. I mean, especially yeah. in terms of transits, like it's really easy to know. If, Absolutely. If you know where the planets are right now, you, you're, one of your first reference points is how that relates to your birth chart since Absolutely. that was your initial chart that you started with with your, your studies. Yeah. But um, And you also might know some of the broader, let's say, timing technique patterns or like time lord um, periods that you're in at any given time because yes. that's something that's fixed and, and relatively long in duration. Yeah. Uh, but you might not know like some of your like sub period or, or most minute. Absolutely. Things. Absolutely. Yeah. I have um, what I think of as just sort of I know where I am. Like I know that I know what my level one and two ZR are. 
I know for spirit and fortune. I know what perfection I'm in. Right. I know my dasha and antar dasha. I know my narayana dasha. I know my natural years of the planets, and I know the transits. And you know, um, uh, I don't look at anything down. Generally, I, I know all my time lord periods that I actually use down to level two. Mm -hmm. And so, if I have a specific concern related to that technique. Um, then I'll like look up what level three or four are, but yep. generally it's sort of just uh, uh, locational. Like yeah. that's that's where I am, and that's where the planets are, and that's just in the background. If I need, you know, that I will, you know, check for navigational reference whenever that's a great way of describing I need it. that. Checking with the compass. You're like, oh yeah, yeah. And three I guess more months. three more months. And the one time of you know that I might be a little more inclined just to pause and think would be around my birthday when the annual perfection's resetting and the time lords changing and that type of thing. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, is this sort of similar for you, Chris? Or yeah, like I'll know what the transits are because I'm always I'm often paying attention to um, the electional charts on a day to day basis, and mm -hmm. I sort of know if you know tomorrow the moon's applying to a square with mars versus like in a few days it's applying to a trine with jupiter or something yeah. like that and that always gives me a background knowledge of what the transits are in the sky at the time so i'm naturally also going to know what my own personal transits are more or less on a daily or weekly yeah. basis yeah. uh and i know my level 1 of course zodiac releasing periods and i know my level 2s cuz those last for a year or two or sometimes 3 mm -hmm. And I know that I'm like in a level two peak period right now, but that'll run out in a few months. But I might not otherwise know what level three or or especially level four period is. I, like Lisa just reminded me, told me actually didn't remind me, told me that I'm in a like level four loosing of the bond in fortune today that was jumping to a, a mixed sign for me over the past few days. Okay. So that was good background information where it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But I wasn't otherwise like I think I feel like one of the things I've noticed is new astrologers. Because your own birth chart is often your primary interest and it's your first reference, like case study, new astrologers go through this process for a few years of being uh, super obsessed with their own chart and applying every technique to it and knowing everything about it, often down to a minute level for quite a while, like mm -hmm. early in your studies. And that's mm -hmm. relatively normal. But there is some like leveling out of that, I feel like, that occurs, yeah, yeah. At, at some point, and especially. When I occasionally would talk to some some much older astrologers, like um, when I talked to Demetra George or Rob Hand, yeah, they were not like obsessed with their chart constantly, like every day. And while they yeah. did have some background knowledge of larger trends, it wasn't the same level of focus. There was, in some instances, even a greater level of just like acceptance of just I need to go about living my life, and that's my primary concern at a certain point. Yeah, I think part of what happens there is that in the beginning, you're you're in an intake phase where you're taking in the wisdom of astrology, the techniques of astrology, the practice of astrology. It's natural to apply that to your own chart, maybe your partner's or children's or family's chart. So there's a massive intake, but there comes a time where it starts to like for me there was the shift. The shift happened partly when I started seeing more clients, mm -hmm. and then I was doing the work, but it wasn't all about me anymore. And that was so we started to have that shift of. Well, let's see how these things work, or how can we take them out into the world, and and the focus is less on you know your yourself, if you like. Yeah, I think that's that's a very real thing. I would also say for me, and probably not just for me, mm. you do all your thinking about not just the period you're in, but the next couple periods, and then when you get there, you've already 
thought about it. Yes, mm -hmm. that's like, true. Yes, you know, in uh, two years, I will enter a new level one CR period. I've thought about that and and thought of it, considered the parameters of that for, I don't know, 12 years. Yeah. Like, I, I have a set of expectations that's based on technical analysis. Um, and so, you know, it's I've already got that. Yeah. Like I can just reference well, all the work that I've done on that. Or like, you know, with perfections, you're like, oh, it's another sixth house perfection. I remember what happened last time. Yeah. I, I, I not only remember what happened last time, but I sat down two years ago and looked at all my sixth house perfections and looked at the difference by transits. And like, I can just open that file and yeah. I have a, a set of reasonable expectations based on that. Yeah, and I think just as you're saying that, Austin, it makes me realize that when you first get into astrology, in some ways you're playing catch up too, mm -hmm, because you're doing that intensive period in those first few years of learning about yourself, what's happening currently, but also how the timing techniques relate to everything that's happened in your past. Yeah, and, and then when, you're looking yeah. at everyone else's birth chart, everyone else's transits in your life. Yeah, absolutely. But then once you've been in it for a while, you've got more time to let things breathe and you have more time to get your head around what's coming up next and you're not doing as much background catch up if yeah. you like so it does it i think the plateau is very relevant very real and there's probably something related to that which is that many people's primary motivation in getting into astrology and studying natal astrology especially becomes an interest in learning about the self and like mm -hmm. who am i and what am i here to do yeah whereas like if you, the longer and longer you've been in astrology oftentimes the more well-defined like your sense of who you are and, and what you're doing here maybe is at that point so that the almost obsession with it or that searching for that question might be lessened because you might have more of those answers on some level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was a part to this question about what are some good questions to ask when having your first astrology consult? Yeah. Um, any tips? For any astrology consult, Ask questions that are important to you. Yes. Right? Just ask. Well, um, I think, and especially yeah. like, you know, if you know what, uh, which you probably do, like what kind of astrology the person you're consulting with practices yes. and what kind of questions they answer, like what is important to you that you think they probably have answers to? Just, yeah. just ask. Just I mean, that raises a good point though, which is if you um, ask a person, a question or a technical question or even a philosophical question that they don't specialize in or aren't like the right person to ask you're not going to necessarily get a good answer yeah so having familiarity with like what types of questions can this astrologer answer or mm -hmm. do they claim to be able to answer ahead of time is is actually really important because if, if, yeah. if somebody came in and like asked me about their past lives, I would say that's not what I do. Yep. Yeah. And they could be incredibly disappointed if they go in just assuming that all astrologers deal with past lives or deal with karma or mm -hmm. deal with any other number of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes that can be clarified just by asking ahead of time, these are the range of questions I would like to ask. Do you feel confident or comfortable addressing all these issues? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are sometimes yeah, today, you know, the style of my practice has changed over the years where, you know, in the beginning when I first started seeing clients more than 15 years ago, there was more of a modern spin and that's really evolved. Mm -hmm. So there are certain things that clients will ask about. And I'm like, look, I'm not really working with that or that's not a technique I offer. So I think there are questions to ask even before you book the reading um, in terms of making sure that this person can answer the things you want to know at that point in time. But I think one of the larger questions I wanted to say here or larger points is that it is good to ask questions mm. that when you come into any type of reading like this, 
having a sense of a theme or a topic or an issue that you would like some insight around, the more clear, and maybe this is a a layover from my horary days, if you have a sense of what you want to know, it's going to be easier for someone to try and give you insight around that. Yeah, as opposed to the opposite scenario is just somebody, like a client come in and handing you the chart and then sitting back and folding their arms and saying, "Yeah, tell me everything about my life without (laughs) any real question or Or, or any context. And, And you can do that. And I have done that. And I have had clients over the years that are just like, I'm just curious about astrology. What does... And really what they're saying, and I'll say, so you just kind of want to know about yourself through the chart and that that's at least that is a, a way in, if you like. It's not essential. Like your astrologer can do the chart read without that, but it will help focus uh, your time together. And from the client perspective, it will help you give you a sense of that really met my need or I really got something that I can identify out of it. Yeah, because there's some tech, there's some questions that I would use certain techniques for, and mm-hmm. there's other techniques that I would use for other types of questions. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. So letting your practitioner know what you're after allows them to most adequately prepare to meet your needs right. on the day. Yeah. So asking questions is good, and yeah, and you know, e- even if you do ask somebody, you ask a practitioner a question that's not one that they answered, they'll probably just tell you that. Yeah. And that'll be that'll take up twenty seconds of the reading. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, Yeah. like if I'm like Kelly, what mantras should I practice during, um, you know, during the fifty second year of my life? I'm like, yeah, it's not really what I study. I don't work with mantras, Austin, but I can refer you to someone who does. Yeah, um, (laughs) it's just too bad if that's sometimes like something the client comes into just assuming you do, and and then are disappointed if. They didn't ask that question ahead of time to make sure that that's something that you specialize in or, or do. So it's important it's, sometimes to ask those questions yeah. ahead of time it, rather than like it, in it the is. consultation Absolutely. itself. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel like um, it's pretty. I don't know. Maybe this is just my perspective. It seems like it's pretty clear what everybody does. Like everybody's website is like, I do this. Um, if you look at my work, I deal with this kind of thing. Totally. And I think there is a little bit of onus on the client to ensure that if they're going to take the time and spend the money of having a session with someone, that you look into a little bit of what they offer. And most practitioners will have a description of what their sessions cover or include. So a little bit of research before you go ahead can definitely ensure that your experience is is more fulfilling. Yeah. I just think if you don't have any background in astrology, sometimes clients come in not realizing that there's differences between astrologers or different specializations or different techniques. Yeah. And that's where the issue can come from. Totally. I guess I just, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, it can come from, and I don't know that there's a solve for that, basically. Yeah, just greater awareness of us saying that on this podcast so that the people listening to it will know to do that, whereas they might not otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, Let's see. Next question. Do you want to ask this one? I think I feel like I've asked a few. Okay. Um, at Grace Rolak on Twitter asks, if you have the malefic contrary to sect in the sign of its rulership or exaltation, would you interpret that as having more power to cause trouble or would you say that it's less troublesome because of its dignity? And then there was yeah. like a related sub-question from somebody else. At, uh, uh, on Twitter, at uh, Bryony Climb writes, is it more subjectively positive for native to have strongly positioned malefics or weakly positioned malefics? Example, would angular Saturn in Capricorn in a night chart be better or worse for the native than an angular Saturn in Aries in a night chart? 
So when we read this before, I think we were all essentially on the same page about the answer to this. Yes. I think so. What was the answer? Satin and Cap. <laughs> we would take Satin and Capricorn any day of the week over Satin and Aries. So the, the dignified malefic, um, even if contrary to sect, is mm -hmm. going to be more preferable than a poorly placed malefic by zodiacal sign. Yes. Yeah, generally speaking. Um, and another big part of this is um, – the planets, <clears throat> the planets in your chart will tend to do all of the things that it's suggested they do. Mm -hmm. um, if if there's a planet, if let's say the malefic country to sect um, is in a strong position, it will do some good things for you, mm. and it will also do the the difficult things that it being the malefic country to sect suggests. Yes, it'll do all of the things. Yeah, and this question, part of the reason it, I was kind of happy to take this question today is that it just came up in a workshop I taught yesterday, and one of the example charts that I used as a response was the chart of Meghan Markle, the American who married uh, Prince Harry. Mm -hmm. And she has a Cancer Rising chart, so Capricorn Descendant. It's a nighttime chart with Saturn ruling the seventh, and Saturn is in Libra in the fourth. And that's, you know, this is her second marriage to Harry. In a night chart? In a night chart. Okay. Yeah. So we've got the out of sect malefic is exalted and it's the ruler of the seventh. Right. Uh, and so we can see she's had one marriage that obviously didn't work out super well. And she's now on her second marriage, which sounds good on paper. Married a prince, going to be financial stability for life, I imagine. There are certain advantages there to, are that. to that. Yeah. So there is an exaltation factor there. Yeah. I mean, that's a really literal exaltation delineation. Right. right? Like she has raised up in many. And from yeah. the fourth, someone who comes from an exalted family. family. Yes. Mm. Saturn's in Libra in the fourth. Uh, but the out-of-sect malefic factor is to go into this marriage, she had to change her nationality, she had to become British. She's had to change her religion, she had to become, you know, into the Church of England, I believe. Um, she's also had to move thousands of miles away from where she actually lives. So there is a sense of some of that restriction or that heaviness, if you like. Now she's I'm presuming she's gone willingly into this marriage, but it comes with conditions and criteria. Yeah, and there's I mean, going to be a lot of limitations on her behavior for the rest of her life. Absolutely. It's a heavy weight. It's a heavy burden. Yeah, things she can and can't wear, things she can and can't say in public, um, the scrutiny, you know, of having uh, – you know, paparazzi around you all the time. So yeah, that's interesting because we were talking about that as a fourth house topic when we did our houses series, just about fourth house as being um, the area where it's the most private in the mm -hmm. sense of your private life as opposed to the 10th house, which is your public life. Absolutely. And the scrutiny that she's under is perfectly because of her uh, private life, her family, and more so now that they have a child. Yeah. So um, really, we see both. We see the exaltation factor, but we also see the out-of-sect malefic yeah. factors. And, and the way I usually answer this, because it comes up especially in Saturn Returns, and this is something Lisa and I found over and over again in doing Saturn Returns stories, was that um, the um, if you have a day chart, Mars is the most difficult malefic due to sect. And if you have a night chart, Saturn is the most difficult malefic due to sect. And um, when a person has a Saturn return, oftentimes or an act activation of Saturn by transit, that can be challenging in a night chart, but they tended always to be offset or they tended to be a little bit better than they should have been otherwise if Saturn was dignified by being in its own sign or its mm -hmm. own exaltation. So it's always a factor where the dignity of Saturn takes the edge off of and sometimes um, adds a sort of silver lining rather than the opposite scenario that the questioner was asking about of making it worse somehow because Saturn is perceived as stronger. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that's true just in general. And also with Mars, that Mars, while it's true, it'll still be the more difficult planet if it's in a uh, day chart, if it's also dignified somehow zodiacally, then you're going to get some some more positive things coming from it as well, and it's going to not tend to be as bad as it could be otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Anything else? So, do you have yeah, anything I guess to we add would, to that also? Think, oh, just yeah. that um, you know the when you see contradictions, um, be like, oh, which you always will. You're like, oh, this planet's got a great essential dignity, but it's in a bad house. Or yeah. uh, this planet's in this great position in the 10th, but it's meh here, uh, and it rules this really good house, and it rules this really difficult house. Um, that planet over time will do all of the things. Yes. Um, instead of, um, you know, I think earlier um, I in my practice, I would look for things to everything to cancel everything out yeah um and that that's not really um how it, how works. it works it does all of the things and yeah. then you can come to an overall opinion based on all of the things mm-hmm. but all of those things will tend to happen yeah and so you can have a mixed experience where um you can have a good thing and a difficult thing happen in different parts of your life around the same time right like with a saturn return this- it's like oh my um, my favorite grandpa passed away and that was really hard for me, but I really came into my own here. I and got then, this great promotion at right, work at and the same like, time. You know, getting a promotion and grandpa passing away, like there, you can't just, uh, those are two separate things. Mm-hmm. And that was that time in your life Yeah, where there was this and this. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cool. All right. So I think that answers both of those questions. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's see. Next question. Are we good with this? Um, I don't really have much to say about that. I mean, we. Could. I've got a. I've got a quick thing to say okay. about it. Okay. okay, here we go. So, Renee Marcellus, uh, I have a nodal return coming up. I'm having a hard time finding info about it. I'd love to know what one should expect during a nodal return. So, the quick answer is that nodal returns are really important for really nodal charts. Yep. If you the more planets you have on that axis, the much bigger a deal that's going to be. If you don't have any planets on that axis, just look at that pair of houses. There'll be a lot of action on that pair of houses, but if you have the more planets you have on that axis, the much bigger deal it's going to be. Like I have a very nodal chart, so the my returns were a huge deal. Yeah. I have the sect light on the nodal axis. Yeah. Um some people have zero planets on the nodal axis. So Kelly, I, I I taught I have a four week class on um, nodes, which includes nodal return. Do you have any? Do you have any uh, teaching? I don't have any specific. That? No, and I do get questions like this occasionally, so I have to put something together. But I don't at this time. But I, I mean, I agree with all the points you're saying in terms of the more nodal that that your chart is. Uh, I think you know if the nodal returns happening in an angular house that can charge it up a bit. But yeah. it's more about if it is triggering other planets at the same time or activating um, co-present planets. Yeah, not every chart is equally nodal. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still trying to decide after coming out of modern astrology, where there's became in the late 20th century this obsession with the nodes. And this overemphasis on the nodes, where some astrologers can't literally can't read a chart without the nodes being in it, and I decided to remove that from my astrology more than ten years ago, and then just slowly start reintroducing the nodes. I'm still trying to understand to what extent the nodes themselves are important versus the nodes are only important because of their connection with eclipses, uh, and sometimes I still go back and forth about that. 
Yeah, I think um, I have got some better understandings about the nodes from the little that I have learned through the Indian traditions of astrology. I've got some better metaphors, if you like, or better understanding. Uh, from a natal perspective, I think when there's a planet conjunct, either the north or the south node, that can be part of a, a factor of kind of qualifying how that planet operates in the chart. Uh yeah, but it is, it's it's something that I did find similarly was overemphasized in the modern approach and I had to pair it back and then bring it in in the ways that I felt it was actually going to be effective, mm-hmm. that I was seeing it be effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, what's our next question? Um, so we, do we want to keep going on the this current question list or do you want to look elsewhere? Um, yeah, we can bring in some of the uh, questions from Facebook. Yeah. Okay. One of the questions that I think you read out earlier, um, I'm assuming you want to take it, but tell me if it's wrong. What are the best and worst things about doing the podcast for so long? I don't know if you want to speak to that at all. Um, Well, let's do some first that we can all discuss. Do you guys have an opinion on like, how do you, one of the questions from Facebook by Aaron B was, how do you communicate really extremely nasty aspects to a client? Kelly, didn't you teach a I workshop this on question. this? I love this question. I did. I actually just taught a four-part class called Counseling Skills for Challenging Aspects. And it's basically, first of all, how to identify difficult aspects and configurations in the natal chart and then how to talk about it. Mm-hmm. One of the components we looked at was to build our vocabulary about words that we might use to describe things that from a technical perspective we might think of as malefic or dysfunctional, but how would we actually use that? And part of the inspiration that I took, that I held inside me as I was delivering this program was uh, from Lily's uh, letter to the student, where he talks about letting people know their hard fate by degrees. Um, So there's a, a piece of that of maybe not being unnecessarily brutal, but I also think there's a component about being clear that mm-hmm. if something does look difficult in the birth chart, we would be remiss not to express that to the client. Now, we may not want to say this part of your life is crap and it will never work. I don't know that that's necessarily helpful, but we might say that this part of the chart looks quite limited. There may be some delays. It might be a part of the chart that is going to have limitation. It might be that a particular planet's condition indicates that great effort is going to be required to activate that topic. And then the individual can sort of decide whether that topic is worth the effort, for instance. Mm -hmm. So part of it is, first of all, for you to be clear in your mind about what the difficult aspect is. And I think the extra piece that traditional astrology does very well is to what topics in the life does that difficult aspect speak so that you can be very clear that this problem in the chart, if your technical issue is directly connected to X, Y, or Z topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the special interest areas that I've got like a research project running on is about Um, when the Lord of the First is in quite a difficult condition and how that can indicate um, some health concerns, for instance. And when you're dealing with a client in that situation, you don't beat around the bush. You just go in and and you talk about, you know, this can indicate that the vitality in the body doesn't work well, that your body doesn't function the way it should, um, that there can be an ongoing or a lifelong health concern, for instance. What if they say, I've not not experienced that so far? So I had one client say, no, my health's really good. And I was like, okay, fair enough. That um, factor, I'm, I'm misinterpreting it or it's not relevant for your, cl- your your chart in some way. And we went on with the session and about 15 or 20 minutes later, 
from a, a different perspective, the client then revealed that they were born with this heart condition oh, that right. they had two or three surgeries for as a child. And uh, it's, you know, it's been fixed, but it was there in the beginning. Right. If they're that like, makes sense. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the heart thing, the thing where I was born with a major heart defect yeah. and had to have and like I was 20 like, surgeries. Oh, okay. I think that's probably the health piece that I was talking about. And they're like, oh, I didn't realize because it's not active anymore, yeah. for instance. So, there, of course, that can be tricky because is it relevant the whole life? Is it some, that was one of the better instances of this type of thing where it was treatable and it was a solved problem, if you like. Um, but there are instances, Chris, I know uh, we've talked about this, where the client may not be at a point where that issue has kicked in yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the biggest issue, especially if you're dealing with like a, a younger client is yeah. like maybe they haven't experienced that yet. Yeah. And you don't want to scare them, but from, you know, just to use that example with the health or the the Lord One body piece is, okay, fair enough. If it hasn't kicked in, that's great. If things come up for you in the future, maybe jump on them more quickly, you know, don't delay doing a test or getting a, you know, checking things out if something comes up that's a little off. Mm -hmm. But how would you guys answer this question? Well, a couple things. Um, so one, there's so much you can say uh, about a life with a chart, mm -hmm. right? And so um, that inherently limits the amount of things that can be discussed in a thorough and meaningful manner yeah. in any consultation, mm -hmm. right? So if you see in a chart that during the 56th year, ooh, looks like there like they're are likely to be heart problems. And this person is 24 and they're asking you about professional development. You're not like, oh, hold on. You know, yes. in about 29 years, you know, <laughs> you're really going to want to pay attention to your heart. That's like, fair. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, don't go out of your way to find a problem that's not relevant. Yeah. Um, if somebody asks me specifically about a topic and there is something negative, then it is my job to uh, relay it in an accurate um, but tactful manner. Beautifully said. Um. And in general, I also think that um, it's important to balance uh, – do, do what you can to balance your, your communication or your messaging about a chart. Um, <clears throat> you know, if, we're, if we end up talking about something that's very difficult for mm -hmm. a while – um, I think it's important, but there's all there's a bunch of great stuff in the chart, but just that hasn't come up so far. Yeah, I think it's important to you know leave um, uh, leave the person with the impression that you know their chart has good things too. There's a mix, of right? It's a, not a nasty thing it, potentially. In you, it. you asked about the problem, so we focused on that, but that's not the entirety of what your chart says. Yeah, uh, and again. Um, Within the bounds of honesty and integrity, like you don't make up things. That yeah, you are don't good. pretend something's better than what it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's funny when you said that because so I taught the four part class on counseling skills for challenging aspects. And then the next thing that I taught was a three part course on benefits and blessings, looking at all the Venus Jupiter things in the chart. So there was a real count. The teaching model took the model that I often use which with clients, which mm -hmm. is happy to talk about, you know, what's problematic or difficult, because that's where, uh, you know, the in, I remember Demetra George has spoken about this, where she talks about in some ways, it really validates a client's experience when we can acknowledge that there is an indication or a signature in the chart that describes a problem that the client already knows they're dealing with. Yeah. It won't mm -hmm. be a surprise to the client to hear that X, Y, or Z. Look, I know, Kristen, you, you were sort of 
what if the client hasn't got there yet? Right, because that's true of older clients, but sometimes of younger clients, they just haven't had that haven't event had that. happen to them yet. Yeah, um, and most of the clients that I have worked with, they're like, oh, I was curious about why, or that part of my life does concern me. I feel like I failed there for some reason, or what am I doing wrong that that part of my chart or my life doesn't function the way other people's do? So there is an opportunity to create some insight or context around that for sure. people. Yeah. Yeah, and there are. Um you know, one function of a lot of techniques is you can you can very often figure out um, if um, if a difficult or if a blessing or a curse, like something really um, uh, favorable or unfavorable, mm. is like scheduled for delivery later, or yeah. whether that probably happened already. Yes, yeah, th there are some ways you can get that. Timing. That's that's one of the things um, when I look at a chart and I'm like, oh, that promises that, and I'm like, has that happened yet? Is that unfolding right now, or is yep. that like four years from now in the in the future? I also sure. won't talk about something amazing that's going to happen when they're 75 if they're 20. Yeah, they don't need yeah. Um, and one issue that comes up in doing predictive astrology like this, though, is there's always ultimately going to be some ambiguity surrounding um, the extent and the severity, even mm -hmm. of the most negative indications, so that you have to be um, careful because astrology and the birth chart is not a crystal ball that you look into mm -hmm. like you're watching a movie about the future. You're looking at um, symbols and symbolism, and you're attempting to interpret them to the best of your abilities. But there's still a level of of speculation and a level of not complete precision that, that's available, and that's true even in terms of astrologers looking at their own charts. That sometimes mm -hmm. we can in, we can see a difficult transit coming up. We can have a pretty good idea of what it's going to relate to or how bad it might be, but there might still be a range of oh, this wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, or oh, yeah. this actually was worse than I even anticipated uh, within a, a range or a bounds of certain. Probabilities, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important for astrologers to acknowledge that because it brings a level of uh, what's the term like humbleness mm -hmm. when approaching the prediction of especially difficult events for other people, and the ability to leave open room for maybe it won't be even if I think this is going to be worst case scenario, maybe it won't be as bad as it could be for this person, and, and giving them some room uh, to breathe in terms of that, not framing it. Even if you do think, in your personal opinion, that it's going to be the worst case scenario, I'm not sure that it's always helpful to the client to lay that on them, especially if they're not prepared for that information. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the approaches that I often take when I'm looking at something that, from a technical perspective, is indicated to be quite difficult, is I might say, "Look, there's a there's a spectrum of of um, possible manifestations here mm -hmm. that." We're definitely talking about the topic of maybe career or relationships because getting the topic can be an easier piece. And then you've got the timing with whatever timing technique you're using. But I might say, you know, A, B, C, and D could happen, you know, with A being a relatively mild version of this challenge and, you know, D or E being one of the more difficult versions, um, that there could be something within that space, if you like. Yeah. I, I mean, there's always going to be a tension between the astrologers desire to um, be open and honest with the client and tell them exactly what you see and what you think mm -hmm. versus um, also the desire not to harm the client with knowledge that they may not be prepared to handle or deal with and not wanting yourself as the astrologer especially to have somebody come back and say like why didn't you tell me about this thing coming up mm -hmm. that's it's a fine line yeah it's a very fine line sure 
Yeah. Yeah. So th that's tricky, though. I mean, because what if in some techniques, like if a person's starting extremely, like a 30 year period that is their most difficult, what I would think in their life for a certain topic, um, but that's not something that they're inquiring about. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it's always necessarily to go into that or to emphasize that. And somebody sometimes emphasizing the more positive or constructive parts of the charter of the person's life to me is more important than laying on them if some super heavy stuff is going to last for the greater portion of the rest of their life or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, how do you guys feel about that? I mean, um, it sounds like Yeah, like like I said earlier, I won't um give information that I'm not asked about, especially mm -hmm. if it's negative. But mm -hmm. you also said that you feel like you it's your duty to be if they as, ask me about it. So if you, if yeah. you so you'll just lay that on me and say yes, this is the worst well, 30 year you're using period that of your life. Like, well, I, I won't I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> say worst. Um I would um um depends on what the question was. Um yeah, I would I would describe it in a tactful and uh, best I could uh, accurate manner if I was asked directly about that mm -hmm. as the person's astrologer. Yeah. Um and but what is the line between so accurate much, versus tactful? Well, there's so much other stuff going on. Like there's no 30-year period that's uniform. You might be going, you know, um for this topic or for the peak uh, peak most difficult parts of that period like there might be a few years that are you know really brutal um but there's still going to be high points within that and you know it's um it's, uh, it's still I, finding I, ways though to hedge or, or to emphasize this silver lining the, within what is overall like a super negative potentially period let's say in the worst worst case scenario like if you're still looking for well within this you'll have these positive sub periods that will punctuate an overall, you know, extremely difficult period for this topic, where some very traumatic or uh, tough stuff might happen or be removed from your life. Um, there's still a, a tension there in terms of wanting to be brutally honest about that versus, on the other hand, um, wanting to be compassionate and not laying something completely on somebody that they may not be prepared to hear or, or may not be actually even healthy for them to hear. I don't. I'm not sure that foreknowledge of things is always necessarily helpful. There might be instances where it might not be helpful or could be a burden for the person. Sure. Well, and I also, I don't see any one technique as being able to say everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there are always contradictions. There, there's confluences and contradictions at different points in the life. Um, and Absolutely. so, you know, the zodiacal releasing from spirit might um, might be difficult, but um, you know, I see the, for example, Vim Shodari Dasha being very accurate. And so, let's say for half of that thirty years, they're also in a really rough um, a Vim Shodari Dasha period. Whereas in the other half, they're in their best sixteen years. Um, and so, you know, I I, I I look at all of the things that I look at and weigh them against each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I tend to focus on the next 12 to 18 months with clients from a mm -hmm. timing perspective. Yeah. Um, so that's a comfort place for me. And it tends to be something that clients are, it's a sort of a manageable forward looking time frame that they can reasonably or practically work with. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I, I guess I think there is a way to be honest without being brutal, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That you can be compassionate and still talk about things that are difficult. I also know that when clients are 
in the thick of or about to start something that's quite difficult, it does them a disservice to ignore the challenges of whatever they might be dealing with. Yeah. Right. To, it's it's more helpful to say, look, this particular cycle or perfection or transit or what have you began three months ago and it lasts for 18 months perhaps and, and they'll often say, oh, this horrible thing happened three months ago. They will actually take comfort from knowing there is an end point to that, even if it is, you know, six or 12 months ahead. So, yeah, I think, I think there is a way to be honest without being brutal, basically. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. different people respond to information and use uh, foreknowledge or, you know, um, sketches of the future in different ways. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, some, um, you know, there's a good portion of clients who come in with worst case mm -hmm. and you're like, actually, it's only pretty bad. And they're like, oh, thank God. Yeah. Right. I was yeah. assuming, you know, nightmare, uh, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And I'm like, mm, yeah, it's not, it's not going to be what you think. You know, yeah. Um, and then some people like... Um, are assuming the best possible case, and you know you might you might need to have a dialogue about ratcheting down expectations, managing expectations. But like people come in with very different psychologies. Some people are really comfortable with the idea that everything's terrible, like that's their baseline. Yeah. Some people, you know, like they're just you know all There's of a, the different all varieties, all the different people, <laughs> and so you're always reading for you're consulting for the person you're consulting for yeah. and there are some good principles of consultation and rules of thumb um, but just like with charts like each chart has its own dynamic that's true yeah that's a good point sure but there's some so there's some level though of adaptation to each client and where they're at and what their psychology is in terms of how you're presenting the information yeah just like um it's like a more in like a more intense version of having a conversation with anybody. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, I mean, for my practice, which has run for many years now, it will depend on whether the client is brand new or whether they're a mm -hmm. client that I have worked with annually for 15 years. There's a different level of dynamic. There's a different level of trust um, between the client and the practitioner. And there's also a different level of understanding of the chart. Mm -hmm. So if I've got, if I'm privileged enough to have a, a client that I've worked with for a number of years, we will have gone through many highs and lows together already, mm -hmm. but we will both have an understanding of how their chart works based on different timing factors, which allows more of an open dialogue uh, because that trust, but that that's something that builds over time as yeah. well. Yeah. And negotiating that dynamic is one of the important skills that you start learning as a consulting astrologer. And that's one of the reasons it's important to start getting that experience because getting experience negotiating those things and feeling out where a person is at and what um, they're maybe capable of hear hearing on some level is something that you can't necessarily read in a book that you have to learn how to do partially by, by practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you have to learn what your part of responsibility around that is as the practitioner. And then also to, to talk with the client about what are the kinds of things you want to hear about, not just in terms of career or money, uh, but to to for the two of you to talk together about um, what is an appropriate style of languaging around what, what might be quote unquote good versus quote unquote bad, for instance. So sure. yeah, there's a lot that comes in. And these are what we're really talking about here, I think, are sort of client practice skills, which are separate to, but are very, like in addition to the astro actual astrological technique skills, if you like. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I think that's good for that question. Uh, it looks like we're at two hours. So I think you guys wanted to cut it off here or do you want to do one other question? Is there like one particularly juicy question we can end on or is it time to wrap it up? I mean, I'm yeah, if there's a juicy question for sure. Do you have one in mind, Chris? 
It's uh, kind of a fun question, but I don't know if you guys want to take that. That came through before. Okay, might be nice to end on a fun note. Yeah. Okay. So we were just talking about how to communicate the worst possible scenario. <laughs> so this is, and this is a little bit more. Um, somebody was asking us, uh, the three of us, about uh, chart swaps, basically. Do you want to read the question now? Mm -hmm. So uh, Bernal Orbit from Twitter asks if you could trade placements with each other from your chart charts, which ones would you take on and why? So what would you steal? <laughs> well, because we did get the questions earlier, I have prepared my answer for this. All right, why don't you start? So I would steal your Gemini Moon oh. because I know that's not, I mean, maybe I should steal something else in your chart, but. Thief's Choice. Thieves choice, yeah. I mean, but the reason I thought about your Gemini Moon is that I do always admire your your wittiness and your way with words, and I'm always impressed by that. So I like, I could have a bit of that. Well, and that would fit well on your chart because you have an angular Mercury, and yeah. that would put the Moon in the fourth, also angular. Yeah. So that would be a, that would be a good fit. I mean, I feel like as I'm saying that, I'm like, shit, you have something really good in your chart that I probably should have like traded for instead. Um, but Chris, I thought about what I would take from your chart too. And there's a theme here. So obviously you're going to, people will learn about what's in, of interest to me. I would, and this is my, I don't know, like, oh, I'm assuming I can sort of, I don't know if I would put all these things in the same chart, but I would steal your Mercury-Saturn conjunction. Okay. Because I like the thoroughness and the diligence of that. I do not have a Mercury-Saturn conjunction in my chart. So I really appreciate that sort of structure and that depth that you have. So that's what I would steal. And I didn't even steal any dignified planets or anything like that. That was very kind of, for you to leave those untouched. <laughs> right. I left those for both of you. It's like an astrology trading game. Like yeah, basically, game. let's just pretend it's like Settlers of Catan and we're like, instead of wooden sheep and bricks, we have to we're bargain. trading planets. <laughs> so I don't know if either of you have thought about this. Let's see. Um, I don't know. I think Chris's 11th house Venus would solve some of my problems. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, I have an eighth house Venus, um, and it rules my eleventh. But from the eighth, yeah, that's different. Um, and uh, eleven, a lot of eleventh house stuff is really draining for me. Mm -hmm. And um, you know what I like, what I think is beautiful. All these Venus topics um, tends to be more more private, and you know work better in a one on one, yeah, uh, or you know, or a more private uh, context. And so, I don't know, it seems like it would be useful to have an 11th house Venus for, you know, as much podcasting and talking as I do. As you do. Okay. One of the things that's really funny is as we're sitting here recording this yeah, episode. What's happening in the sky? Well, I don't think I can pull it up right. I can show it. But literally, when we started this episode, the recording, Venus was still in Sagittarius separating <gasps> from Jupiter. And it just slipped into, into Capricorn. Into Capricorn. So, so I'd also steal Kelly's 11th house Venus in Capricorn. <laughs> okay. So Great, so you're I, taking so, two 11th house Venuses. Yeah, so now I have two 11th house <laughs> Venuses. That'll solve a lot of my, uh, my my social problems. I kind of, until actually, like not just this moment, but earlier on this trip, I didn't make that connection, Chris, that you and I both have an 11th house Venus. Okay. Dif and Venus rules my life. Different signs and stuff. Yeah, and you have, so we all have a Venus connection to the 11th. Mm -hmm. You would just like the more, the placement version of ours rather mm -hmm. than the rulership version of yours. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So I'm just taking all the Venuses. Yeah, like a greedy Venus over here. Uh, I think I would steal both of the the Jupiter emphasis in both of your charts. <laughs> I a, so I have so much uh, Saturn in my chart. It's, a, it's the ruler of the Ascendant, and my moon's in a Saturn-ruled sign, and Saturn's 
uh, up there with all of the Scorpio of planets, the like the Sun and Mercury, that I think I would take uh, Kelly. You just have that stellium, and then you have a very exuberant Jupiter in Leo that's yeah. like ruling the Pisces planets. Yeah. Uh, in Austin, you have that exalted Jupiter uh, in Cancer in the first house. So both of you have the 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 offsetting like Jupiter influence, which I otherwise normally just import by getting you to come out here yeah. uh, and balancing. You would out. like to keep it permanently. Well, yeah. Now I feel bad about stealing your eleventh house Venus because that's one of your few references. Right, that's, that's, that's his joy piece. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's too funny. Yeah. Um. So you would steal the the Jupiters. I think it's the Jupiters. Yeah. I think I like how you both had a theme. I mean, I kind of had a theme. I took a Moon in yeah. Gemini and a Mercury placement, so yeah. we all had themes. Um, that's cool. I like that. Yeah. And so, also, like, just to circle back to, I think, where we started today, we obviously all know each other's charts. So, you know, in our sort of dynamic, it's okay to talk about this kind of thing, um, and then we can poke fun at each other's charts too, which yeah. we do. Well, and as we've talked to this week, we've mentioned stuff in passing or gotten to know each other even more than we did previously because usually we meet up at conferences. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, and occasionally like a chart placement or whatever will become relevant of and course. will be mentioned in passing. Oh, we have definitely had chart chats this week. Yeah. 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 Over cups of tea or dinner. I mean, that's part of the fun of meeting up with other astrologers. Absolutely. And making them friends, getting right. all this 11th house Venus action going. <laughs> right. All right. Okay. Uh, well, I guess that's it for this episode. Yeah. All thanks right. everyone for sending in all your Thank questions. Thank you for your cues. I hope you like our A's. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for sending in your questions. Uh, sorry if we didn't get to everybody. We got to as many as we could today. I think we did a pretty good job actually of getting through quite a few. We did because there were a few we were able to kind of bring in just because they were complimentary to others. So mm -hmm. right. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Uh, thanks to the patrons who supported the production of the episode and uh, we'll see you again next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks to the patrons and sponsors who helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through a page on patreon.com, including patrons Christine Stone and Nate Craddock, as well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs at honeycomb.co, and also the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting an astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. And you can find out more information about that at esar2020.org. And the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening in Seattle, May 21st through 25th, 2020. And you can find out more information about that at norwac.net. For more information about how to sign up to become a patron of the podcast, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.